Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater Get yourself some free shipping. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Uh, real quick, I, uh, before people listen to the show, I want to make it feel like they're being super constructive. And how would we do that? Well, we would have Giannis tell this story. You like that? I set that up. I did. Um. Which story do you want me to tell? About the... the I've got a couple the, of them. The guy getting shot. Okay. I'm oh, doing, what do you mean you got a couple of them? Well, we were just earlier talking about... Uh, oh, the weasel in your yard? Yeah. Yeah, but how does that make people feel constructive? That's just something in your yard. They don't own your yard. What I'm talking about, the, the shot, the getting shot thing would show like how this, how this program saves lives. Oh, Okay. I'm reading up, though, right now, how much... Does anybody in this room know how much one unit of blood is? It's a pint? I don't know. Hmm. Yes, Brody. At roughly the equivalent of one pint. About 525 milliliters. Good job. So, we had a podcast a while back, which was number... Brody, you were here. I was not here. Uh, Episode 192 called Bleeding Out. And uh, a fella wrote in, um, Joey. Joey wrote in to say that this podcast saved his father's life. Now, this podcast, were you here or yes, not? You yep, were. Yep. Do you want to give a quick rundown of uh, what went down on that podcast? Well, we had our buddy, uh, Dr. Alan Lazara, who's an emergency room doctor. 
and uh, that's also, correct. Also a hunter in Detroit, and near he, Detroit, he, Michigan. Yeah, he had been helping us out with various uh, research questions, and uh, so Steve decided to have him out because he's an interesting dude. And uh, one of his main points was that all hunters and fishermen too probably should be carrying around a tourniquet in the woods. Because if you get cut bad, that's really the only thing that's going to save your life. Yeah, and he has, and, he's go ahead. Well, he had mentioned that everybody thinks like, well, I'll just jury rig one, right? Do you know that it's okay to say jerry rig and jury rig? No, I looked that up. People think, well, I'll just jury rig one. He's like, by the time you jury rig one, you're dead. Your buddy's dead. <laughs> How's it okay to say jerry rig? I was about to say. Am I same. am I not thinking that it's the same? Like kind of it's, like it's a negative. It, like isn't it? Doesn't it come from Jerry's kids and doing it the wrong way? That's what I always understood. Hold on, you. If that's the case, I'm not. I don't say it anyways. If that's the case, I definitely wouldn't say it. But you think it has to do with Jerry Lewis telethon? Uh, yeah. Well, where no. does Jerry rig come from? I just thought it was people just. Where does Jerry the wrong can thing? come from? Jerry can? Ooh, it's a good one. I don't know. It's not a jury can. No. Jury rig. Who Seth, you know how to type? <laughs> Dude's not yeah. even doing, he's just sitting over there watching us. Well, you were the one that said that you found out that it's okay to say both, so I want to know why. That isn't and that it's We should just I look. don't mean okay like socially okay. Oh. The 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 source I looked at accepts both. Now it didn't. It wasn't making a moral. It wasn't morally. Oh, I see. Anyways, you're dead by the time. Like if you're gonna go like run back to your truck and get a whatever, <laughs> you come back, your buddy's dead. That's right. And he's got like a national campaign going on. Uh, right. It's called Stop the Bleed. A bunch of ER doctors going around and uh, educating people about how to stop bleeding better. Right. Yeah, yeah, and he convinced all of us to start packing tourniquets. Yeah, I'd never done it. Mine before. finally made it from my desk. The tourniquets they left me, or you gave them to me, to into my back, my daily backpack, which I guess is better than at my desk. But now I'm going to take one and put one in my turkey. Steve vest. was trying a fancy new tourniquet out yesterday. Oh, it's a belt that you wear. Oh, it's pretty aggressive. But yeah, you'd have a belt. Your belt is a tourniquet. Your belt can be. Right. Deployed. So you would always just have it on. Well, just so happens that in this story that Joey writes in about, he uses belt as a tourniquet. They were out uh, pheasant hunting, I believe, in uh, Colorado, Kansas, maybe. Some some place that has a lot of pheasants. And uh, to cut this story a little bit shorter, they get to a spot where they're giving their dogs some uh, water. And... Uh, Joey's dad is in front of uh, one of the other hunter's guns, and the hunter's guns g- gun goes off. Uh, it's a 12-gauge at approximately eight yards and catches him in the uh, ribs, abdomen, and uh, one of his arms. Pretty bad bleeding. Um, they immediately realize it's bad. They called 911. Uh, it takes 50 minutes for them to get for help to get there. I think Joey did a good job with his story. I like the way that he explained this part right here. He said when he was looking at the blood, he's a big deer hunter. And he said, if I was tracking a deer and saw this much blood, I'd be expecting that deer to be dead or just around the corner. 
He said it was like spurting, right? Yes, that's yeah. a great detail. Yeah, great detail. That like that's it a gives bad you a great sign. visual. And they're on snow too, which always makes it makes it look like there's more blood. It makes you think you're going to find deer that you don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so anyways, he's saying that uh, they had started a tourniquet with uh, some ripped clothing shreds one of the other hunters had. Well, he had just recently, two weeks prior, listened to episode 192, Bleeding Out, and he remembered three key points. One, nobody ties a tourniquet tight enough. Two, tying a tourniquet does not necessarily mean that the limb will be lost. And three, when tying the tourniquet, it's necessary to go as far up the limb as possible. So he took off his belt, put it way up his dad's arm, and cranked on it. Um, He made it to the hospital. He received 14 units of blood, which we now know is uh, roughly 14 pints. And yeah, how many? How could that possibly be true? How many pints does a human body hold, Seth? Come on, it eight eight to twelve. So they might it might have been a situation they gave him more blood than is in your body. You as look, he look. was losing it. <laughs> yeah, probably as he was losing it. They were pumping it in. I, I think it's possible. I'm not calling the brother liar. I'm just, <laughs> it's just hard for me to fathom. Okay, well, let's just say it was 10 and not 14. Um, yeah, it doesn't say He's anything. He's got like an in-pipe and an out-pipe. <laughs> <laughs> They're just Anyways, recycling it. The, the hospital complimented <laughs> him dozens of in. times on the quality and application of his tourniquet. All principles uh, that he learned on the podcast. So, there you go, man. Good job, man. Listen, listen to the media podcast might save someone's life, especially uh, episode one ninety two. Yep. Now, uh, real quick, Yanni, tell about the weasels. Real quick. So, I, I'm gonna give a little background. Okay. Uh, well, just tell them about the weasels. Okay. I was going to talk about how I can't get permission on your property and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, my gal just lo- loves the wildlife more alive than dead sometimes. She loves them more, well, than, in more a, than your chickens. In a way, in a way, because there's a long list of things on your property that are on the go list or that are on the okay list. Listen, yeah, as soon as they took out a chicken or two and the ermine, Longtail weasel, it'd, it'd be game on, you know? Like, we had some squirrels attacking the house this winter. She's out there with the 22 hunting them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> she contemplated. She even set a bait pile for those squirrels, which she didn't. I think she got a shot off, but she missed. But uh, later, I think one day I'd come home, and uh, you know how you pull up in my driveway, you can kind of see past the back of the house. I look down there. I'm like, oh, what is that? I wonder what that squirrel's doing there. And I get a little closer, and he's just sitting there munching away on whatever she'd put out, some seeds. <laughs> so I went inside, got the 22, and dispatched him. She uh, even almost uh, declared war on a fox. Well, she did. She killed the fox. Okay. So don't give me the whole wildlife thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's pretty cool having these ermines around because you get to see them hunting every now and then, maybe once or twice a winter. And uh, we have a decent cottontail population that lives in and around the house, and the ermines usually hunting I've never seen him hunt anything besides the cottontail. Anyways, the other morning I'm up. Must have been this this weekend. It's snowing. There's like three, four inches of fresh snow. I see a bunny rabbit hopping around our plow truck. Watch him for a minute. Go away. 
come back. He's hopping around. And then next thing I see is I see the, like the, tum- the bunny sort of tumbling erratically down our driveway, which immediately, because I've seen it before, means that he and the ermine are locked together. And the ermine's trying to grab it by the neck and suffocate it. And they're tumbling away. Now, I've seen this two or three other times. The bunny rabbit always gets away. So they kind of go out of view over kind of the crest of the hill and uh, wait for a bit. Don't see them. Come back maybe five or ten minutes later and a little farther down the driveway, I can just see a dark spot and I can see a magpie like five feet away. So I grab the, grab the binos and I look down there and like the, it's actually two dark spots because the white ermine is bisecting the cottontail rabbit. Mm-hmm. And now he's just sitting there. The bunny rabbit was still alive a little bit. He was sort of, the ermine was finishing off, but it's amazing how fast the magpies were there, sort of like, all right, we're going to get our piece too. Well, as long as I watched, he fended off the magpies and eventually drug the bunny rabbit into the uh, sort of hawthorn thicket, and I couldn't see him. I didn't, I didn't want to go, I wanted to go investigate, but I didn't want to go disturb his, you know, peace and his kill. So I didn't know. I don't know if the magpies eventually end up getting a chunk or not. But uh, he drug him out of the road and into the hawthorns. Big one. The ermine. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, fourteen incher. Really, that's a good one. If I just had to throw a number at it. Well, we wanted one because we wanted uh, we want one to get tanned. We want one big exemplary specimen to get tanned. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to collect up. In addition to our stuff, we want to collect up one of all fur bears. Uh, as a little project, we we're out. We got our big one because we were out. I, did I, I don't think I told this story. Me and my kid walk out of my friend's ranch house, and he's like, "There's a coyote! There's a coyote!" And I look, I don't see any coyote. <laughs> so now I'm a little bit annoyed. I'm like, "Dude, you know, don't just be like crying out that you see stuff." Yeah, but your boy usually doesn't. He's got a good game on. Yeah. Well, check this out. So, I mean, not 30 seconds goes by. He turns and looks the other way and yells, there's a weasel. Now, you can go like a long time without seeing a weasel. So then I lay into him. I'm like, James, you got to. And I'm in the middle of yelling at him. You just don't trust his game (laughs) I'm in the middle of yelling at him. And this weasel runs back across the road the other direction. And he runs over there with his little 410. And uh, the weasel went down in the hole, and I started doing one of those, like, making mouse noises with your hand. He popped his head right back out of the hole, and Jimmy got him. Nice. Tanker. But then, in skinning (laughs) it, I broke. The whole thing is, in skinning the tail, I have a tail stripper that's used for, like, getting the tailbone out of tails. Um, But it didn't have a fine enough, it doesn't have, like, a weasel setting. Mm -hmm. And I tried to... Flub it and broke the end of the damn tail <laughs> off, man. A little black tip. I know. So I'm gonna tie a fly up. My wife's annoyed because she like doesn't like it, this whole thing. Um I was like, we just need one. And she's like, Well, there's your one. And I'm like, Yeah, but the tail's broken now. So I might just stitch the tail back on. Winter's kind of winding down. Michael Chamberlain, special guest here today. Oh, one last thing. Are you um are you Dr. Michael Chamberlain? Yes. Oh, okay. I like that. That kind of adds, that kind of builds our resume here. Just call me Mike. On the show. You just want to go by Mike? <laughs> yeah, only my wife and my mother call me Michael. Dr. Michael Chamberlain, <clears throat> uh, oh, tur- wild turkey researcher. Yep. But I got one last point I want to make before we get into that. Are we good on weasels? I'm great. Good uh, on weasels. Um, 
One last thing I want to mention, and this has to do with turkeys. You know when you're hunting turkeys, you don't use a blind. It's called running and gunning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy <laughs> we are talking about on social media, we had to think up about, like, when you you guys don't, you, where you're from, you don't ice fish. No. And ice fishing, there's a thing now and then where you just strike off across the lake drilling thousand holes, right? Um, it's the ice fishing equivalent of, like, walking along the bank, casting all over the damn place. Mm-hmm. And you call it hole hopping, prospecting. Um, what else do you call it? Taking a poke. Taking a few pokes. Whatever. You just like leave your area to start drilling holes all over the damn place and see what's going on. And a guy in Canada said, in Canada, that's called running and gunning. Which <laughs> 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 I thought was because there's no gun. Um, okay. How to uh, turkey researcher, you're affiliated with a university. Yep. University of Georgia. How does uh, lay out how that happens that you become a official turkey researcher? Hard work and good luck. Did you grow up hunting turkeys? I did. I did. I grew up in Virginia as a suburban kid that got to hunt on Saturdays with his dad. Uh-huh. We had a fall season that was actually as popular as the spring season then. Uh-huh. So we I actually learned to turkey hunt during the fall. And calling them yeah, you'd, you'd actually go and bust the flocks up, just walk until you'd run across a flock. Did you use a dog to scurry them up? Sometimes. And as soon as the dog would flush or you would flush the birds, you just sit down where they flushed from and start calling. And usually the, the juvenile birds were the first ones to come back, often Jake's. So you bust them up and they all fly in different directions. I want to know about the busting them up because I keep thinking I'm going to go out and do this. I want to know. Like you see them all, like 50 or 100 yards out, right? We would you, actually, are you like running and yelling at them? Well, what we would do is get up on high ground on ridges and call. And well, you would. Yeah, and as soon as you could get a response, you'd just start moving towards them until you could see them, and then you take off running. Now, this also, was, I didn't know there was like a locating component. So you're like really deliberately heading out to do this. Yes, yes. It's not like opportunistic. And it's, it's a bit on the redneck side because there you are running through the eastern hardwood forest, you know, wide open trying to bust these birds and just a shooting no just no, you know, <laughs> just I'm just sure. running and and they would usually they would flush like quail a lot of them would go in one direction but the ones that did not they were money how they, close would you have to get to flush them to, just to depend, really break the just flock de- up? it just depended we used to do the same thing in pennsylvania yeah that was popular Growing up. popular way to hunt yeah. oh I, I, I thought when you opened your mouth next it would be to tell us about jury rigging no. <laughs> Did you find anything out? Yeah. It's, uh, you had two research projects. <laughs> well, Yanni covered the one. Oh. Um, jury rigged means something was assembled quickly with materials on hand, and jerry built, this says, or jerry rigged, means it was cheap or poorly built. But does it say that, does it give the etymology? Um, For you folks at home. The etymology of a word is sort of how it came to. What am I trying to say? Oh, yeah, there was. Hold on. It, it's the word's history. Yeah. Origin. Origin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Wikipedia says its origin lies in such efforts done on boats and ships, sail powered boats. Hmm. Okay, anyhow, what were you saying, Seth? Um, no, I, I cut my teeth on turkey hunting in the fall the same exact way. Just walking. We used to like get a group of guys and just walk until you find them. Yep. That's just, how we did it too. Yeah. Just like spring ground. hunting was not 
fall hunting was way more popular in Pennsylvania than spring yeah. hunting. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Before yeah, that, that can't, there's no I, I'm way in the you, world it's, that's true. It's true. When I was a kid, before that turkey population blew up, there was really only turkeys in the mountains, like down by where Seth lived, and fall hunting was the way people hunted them. Seth's from the mountains? Yeah, man. Yeah. That's exactly yep. how I grew up. Yeah. It was, it was people like fall. it just was not as popular the spring hunting. Were the spring it is hunts now. limited, and that's why? It was just gaining popularity at that oh. time. I mean, yeah, but you grew up where there always were turkeys. Yeah. Yeah. It was just not as popular. It wasn't a, as the thing that it is now. And now, you know, of course, it's done a complete script flip, if you will. I mean, spring hunting is yeah. it's hugely popular and fall hunting is declining in, you know, most of the states. Oh, yeah. How old are you? I'm 48. Oh, so we're like basically the same age. Yeah. My grandfather still to this day will take fall turkey hunting over anything else. Mm-hmm. That's like his favorite thing to do. Well, you don't have to figure out if it's male or female in most places. No. Right. Okay, so you you guys were systematic, though. Yeah. climb up on a ridge, locate a group, a yep. flock. Take off running. And then just talk about the use of the dogs. Because I got a, a, a friend of mine from back home from high school. He's got a turkey dog mm-hmm. trained up to bust them. You just probably get a more effective bust with something as fast as a dog. Oh, right? Absolutely. So the dog would run into the flock, scatter the birds in all directions, and then you sit down, put a coat over the dog, or put the dog behind you and, and start yelping. And usually, like I said, the birds that scattered by themselves, they would immediately come back to you. And you're, so the call you're making is called a kiki. Yeah, just a kiki and a, you know, a real raspy yelp. Anything that would make you think, make those birds think it was mom. Because most of those birds that scattered were, I mean, they were juveniles. Got you. So anything that would bring those birds back to you. Well, what, what, what is the, the difference? I never understood this. There's a kiki and a kiki run. Is it's, that not true? You, you hear people refer to them as, it's basically just this, this you know, kiki, kiki call that, that birds make when they're younger. Oh, so it's just different words for the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think it's the same thing. It is. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I didn't know if it was a difference between a kiki and a kiki run. Yeah. And it kind of originates from, you know, when you when you scatter poults in the summer, you'll hear the poults start whistling, a kiki, 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 and then, you know, and mom will start putting, clucking, trying, you know. So she does, they do it, but she doesn't do it. She can do it. She can do the whistle. Yeah, yeah. turkeys have all sorts of vocalizations. Show me the sound, like if you, let's hear you out here hunting in the fall, you, you bust up a group of turkeys, show me a sound that would be like a sound that would be effective. Huh. But you call a bird in the spring like that. Yes. Yeah. It's basically, I mean, all you're trying to do is say, hey, here I am. That's them collecting up. Yeah. Come back over here. Everything's good when, I, when it's not. I got a buddy that used to get huns that way. Really? He would bust huns up. He lived not far from here. He would bust huns up, and I don't know what vocalization they have. Um, I've probably heard it. But didn't. It's a whistle, if memory serves me. It's been several years. He would bust them up and hide and start doing that, and eventually he'd start drawing them back in. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because they make that raspy kind of cackling yeah. once they get on the ground and start running. Yeah, there's a bunch in my neighborhood, and I hear it all the time. And if you bust them up, they you'll hear them all in different directions making that noise. Yeah. So you guys did that growing up? Absolutely. Did you know, were you like, man, when I get old, I'm going to be a turkey biologist? 
<laughs> no. No, I I went to Virginia Tech, just wanted to be a, you know, a game warden, wildlife biologist, wildlife manager, and next thing you know, I ended up in grad school at Mississippi State and realized research was, was kind of my thing and got the opportunity to stay on and do a PhD. And the project that I studied when I was a master's student was a turkey project. I was basically... I, I didn't plan to study turkeys. I just ended up in this project and became infatuated with the bird and their biology. What was the project? It was just studying turkeys in the Mississippi Delta, uh, just flood-prone areas. Uh, didn't know a lot about the birds in that area. Um, got to get my you know, feet wet, if you will. And then my Ph.D. program was actually looking at predation on turkeys, so I was studying Turkeys using radio telemetry, but then I also put collars on coyotes, bobcats, gray foxes, raccoons, and studied how all those species interact with turkeys. And then I landed in academia, which was just fortuitous. What year was was that going on that you were doing that that initial research? Uh, ninety three through ninety nine. Do you feel that at that time there was a lot of low hanging fruit from turkey research because the country had gone so long without that many turkeys around? Yeah, that, man, that was the heyday. I mean, turkeys were exploding everywhere. They were being restored throughout their range and beyond, as you know. And the research that was ongoing was grabbing low-hanging fruit, partially because we could answer those questions with the technology we had at the time. And there were studies everywhere. There were there were research projects in all sorts of states. You know, you know multiple universities had work ongoing. And then all of a sudden around 2002, 2003, it just kind of started stagnating. And I think part of that was complacency. You know, there were birds everywhere. They seemed to be doing well. People were, harvest was increasing, in, at least in most of the eastern United States. And agencies stopped putting research money into turkeys at that point. And then you kind of saw this lull until the late, you know, 2009, 2010 period when I think a lot of people in the east and southeast realized there was there was an issue. Oh, and you've kind of seen a, a resurrection of turkey research in, in my eyes. In the like past. people stopped taking turkeys for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Humans got short memories, man. We do, we do. Short sighted and short memoried in some cases. Yeah, yeah. When you were doing that work, that initial work, you, you did like a lot of predator work. I did. What uh. If you look at that, but also all the things you've learned since then, and I want to get back into in a minute, I want to get back into your sort of like professional biography. But what kills turkeys in your mind? Not in your mind, but I mean, it's not like you got to guess. I mean, you, you know, oh, as a matter of fact, like you look at like a national sort of picture. Um, what kills turkeys? All of your larger mammals: coyotes, bobcats, foxes. Uh, horned owls, great horned owls, are an efficient predator of turkeys because they kill them in the tree. Oh, they do. They do. Someone was telling me that just the other day. They, they well, that dude we were driving around oh, with. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. They are really yeah. efficient, and and they kill adult toms too. And we find that they do that early in the morning while the birds are gobbling. They single in on birds on you know in the tree. No way, and, really. And, they, and, they and then they just get them on the ground, and they they actually hit them in the tree, and you can see a a plume of feathers that goes away from the tree in the direction that they carry the bird down to the ground. And then they, they kill the bird on the ground, consume what they want and leave. 
And they, 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 you know, horned owls are bad, man. They, right. Dude, that is a big, they kill skunks. Yes, thing to hit. Yeah, uh, horned owls when they're in breeding pairs, they. I used to call it the Bermuda Triangle. I had <laughs> I, I, really when I was doing a, my PhD work, I had four raccoons that were collared, a skunk, um, a gray fox, and two turkey hens in the same kind of general area. And this pair of horned owls killed all of them. <laughs> Holy <laughs> smokes! They did. Hold on, back up. Give me the list again. It was four raccoons, a gray fox, a skunk, and two turkeys. And that that pair of how does he kill a raccoon? A raccoon could put up a fight. Look, Me and Yanni almost seen a raccoon kill a dog one time. Remember that? Horned owls are vicious, and they're so. If you think about it, the way they hit their prey with the force that they hit their prey, and they blindside you. You don't know what's coming. They have the element of surprise on their side, and they are they're incredible. But predators. what's the actual like the 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 method of killing? Like, what dispatches the animal? It's not just the hit. Because you can hit a raccoon with a car. It's the talons. <laughs> it's the talons. Yeah. The ta- they, they strategically put the talons, like, around the neck, I'm guessing. Neck, and, vertebrae, back, anything to disable the, the animal. And they hit it like a peregrine hits. Like, they hit it hard. Absolutely. It's like a it's like a baseball bat. So they'll blow a gobbler out of a tree. Yes. Yes. You got to wonder why it, they respond amazing. to owl hoots. Well, and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's in their frequency band. That that owl hoot is in the same frequency band that a gobble's in. So some of the gobbling work we do, it's very the the technology we use to tease out the gobbles. It's in the same frequency band as an owl hoot, as a crow call, as a coyote howl, a gunshot, a cow oh. mooing. They're all within on the sonogram. They're all within that same frequency band. So it makes sense. We need to give him a, one of our T-shirts that shows all the things that make a turkey gobble. You ever seen this shirt? No, but I'd love to have one. Dude, we got a running <laughs> I'll list. I'll wear it with pride. We got a running <laughs> list of, it, that includes some incredible things. Oh, they'll they'll gobble to all sorts of things. It's crazy. Yeah, sonic booms. Yeah, yeah. Thunder claps. Thunder. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so a, it, guy, a guy hucking rocks at a stop sign. That's on our <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah, so that, you, that was me. Oh. <laughs> when you say, like, same frequency band, it's almost like they can't help themselves. Like, they just... Yeah, you, you hear of shock gobbling. Yeah. yeah that's oh, 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 I want to get... I want to talk about this in, in like Later. detail. Later. But I want, first, I want to talk about, I want to finish up on the great horned owls. Gotcha. So hold that thought about shot goblins. Like, what is he thinking? Um, The great horned owls. Mm-hmm. They ride it to the earth? Yes. Yes. Wow. So they hit, we lose, routinely lose. If we, let's just, for numbers sake, let's just say we put, 15 GPS units on toms and mm-hmm. on this site. We'll lose at least one or two before the turkey season starts to horned owls, at least, every year. And it always occurs from about right now, you know, late February, early March, when they first start gobbling in the tree until right before the turkey season. When, when we see gobbling really is starting to ramp up, that's when those horned owls hit those toms. We had a gentleman the other day explained to uh, me and Seth, that he believes that his bobcats go up into the roost tree and kill the turkeys off the roost. Cats can obviously climb. I I can't really discount that, but it I doesn't would, speak to you. It does not because when you get under a turkey roost, they know exactly. I mean, they know you're there. They know you're there long before you ever get there. And yes, cats are much more stealthy than we are, but 
But bobcats are, are primarily stalk and sit hunters. They sit and wait on things to walk by them. They're lazy like our house cat. You know, your house cat sits on your refrigerator and smacks you in the head when you walk by. Bobcats typically kill birds. We see they kill birds while birds are out foraging. So it's, you know, the kill's made during the day sometime or early morning, late afternoon when birds are kind of strolling along roads or rights of way or whatever, and all of a sudden, boom, there's the kill. I'm not saying they couldn't climb a tree and kill a bird, but... Man, if you think about it, that would be... It's hard to imagine them wrestling a turkey off on a tree branch. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it could happen, but... Well, it could be a heck of a fall. You're putting yourself into a dangerous position to take a, you know, 20, 30-foot fall. Yeah. With a 25-pound bird. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he seemed to think that he would uh, get up there when they're still sleeping and Hmm. surprise them. Isn't that what he was saying? Yep. And get a whole bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I would say the whole bunch probably doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to have to call BS on the whole bunch. Well, I let's not be harsh on the guy. No, he was no, just, just saying. Sharing, maybe, yeah, one, <laughs> maybe one at a time. He was just sharing a perspective with us. Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> okay, so you did all that, and that was in your that your PhD project was in the Mississippi Delta. Well, it was in Mississippi, yeah. My okay. master's work was in the Delta, and my PhD work was in the kind of upland piney woods. And what was that work? Because PhD was, work is very specific, though, right? Yeah, that was the predation. That was where we went in and we marked, we radioed turkeys, hens, and all those predators. And basically what I did was I recreated GPS data, but I did it manually tracking. There, there was no GPS at that time. Mm-hmm. So I would track these animals simultaneously. So I may have three or four cats, a coyote, two foxes, five hens, two raccoons, whatever. How are you getting all that stuff collared up? We trapped our butts off. Live trapping? Yes. We foothold trapped for the cats, coyotes, and foxes and, and used cage traps for the raccoons. And, of course, used rocket nets for the for the turkeys. And I did all that simultaneously. So there were several students working with me that – Let's say student A, he was studying raccoons, and student B was studying bobcats, and then I was kind of overseeing all of it, trapping birds, trapping this, trapping that, making sure <laughs> all— anything get a collar on? We, we, I, both years of that project, I tracked about 150 animals simultaneously. How were you catching the bobcats? Foothold traps. But I mean, like, what, what kind of sets did you make? Uh, we could trap with bait. Because we yeah. were permitted under the state. I mean, visible, like visible bait. Yeah, visible we, we bait, used, um, it was funny, based on your story this morning when, before we started, we used beaver because the caster has such a strong odor. And we had a local trapper that provided beaver carcasses. And we would, uh, we would use the liver. We would use deer liver, deer ribs, anything we could get our hands on that, that had a sight to it. We would hang feathers, you know, anything. Because yeah. cats are such visual hunters. The cats were pretty easy. The coyotes were more were more difficult. But 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 because we could use meat, we were pretty successful. And then you had to have used um, like rubber jaws, laminated jaws, because you had to, these things. You couldn't cripple them up, right? Yeah, yeah. So we used either offset jaws, but most of them were padded. Uh huh. Yeah. Soft catched. Yeah, soft catched. So we would, you know, we would catch the animals. We ran traps every morning, every afternoon. Pulled animals out of the trap. Um, we didn't drug foxes or coyotes, but we would immobilize bobcats and raccoons because they were vicious, obviously. Oh, it was harder to wrestle a bobcat than a coyote? Coyotes are so docile. They, 
with few exceptions, when you catch a coyote, they know they've been beat. They, you, you can take a bath towel and sedate a coyote, truthfully. Really? Yeah. They even, you know, we use catch poles or, or the dog catcher's nets. As soon as the net would go over them, they kind of lay down because, and they would just lay there. And we, of course, we would hobble them, you know, with, with leg hobbles and we would put a, a muzzle around their mouth. But I can only remember two that ever tried to, to nip at me. Yeah. The cats, on the other hand, <laughs> when you try to throw a net or something over them, it is like hell on wheels. Oh, when you put a catch pole around a bobcat, oh, it's just like an explosion. It is. It is. And a lot of times they'll kill themselves. It is. It, oh, fighting a cat. So if, when we're talking about a catch pole, like I used to have one that I made, it just took a piece of conduit and took like a, it must have been maybe three-eighths cable, three-eighths mm-hmm. diameter cable. And imagine that you run, you take it like four feet of conduit, let's say, and run both of the ends of the cable through it so that on one end you got coming out the two ends of the cable, and on the other end you just got like the loop. Mm-hmm. And you can pass that loop over its neck, pull tight with the other hand, and they make more sophisticated versions. But that, that when we're talking about a catch pole, that's like a catch pole. Mm-hmm. Then you can kind of control it, and you got it where you want it, and you can get it out of a trap or whatever. Yeah, you just have to be careful with cats because if you put a lot of pressure on them, you can... Because they're, they're fragile. Yeah. Right? A lot of times, them, yeah. um, we would try to get one leg in the catch pole too, mm-hmm. like get them like around under the armpit and around the neck. Oh, that way when they freaked out, you know, you weren't snapping their neck. Yeah, I've, we we used mostly dog catchers' nets, and they because they were big enough to to cover the entire cat. I found those to be a lot quicker, and, and you know, as you know, South they start hitting the the catch pole. You know, yep. they swat at it constantly, but that big net. They would grab it and chew on it, but most of the time you could kind of wrestle it over them and then just take a, believe it or not, we would just find beaver sticks, chewed sticks from beaver huts that had all the bark chewed off mm-hmm. uh, that were waterlogged, so they were heavy, and we would just pin the cat down, drug them in the butt with with a mobilizing drug, and then remove them from the trout. And then uh, did you guys have pretty good luck when you're doing that type of work? Do you have pretty good luck with with turning them out and they're oh yeah fine yeah very very seldom would we have any issues um you know cats are pretty sensitive to their feet obviously that's their that's their gun so to speak so you have to be careful foothold trapping with bobcats to try not to injure their you know their digits if you do that you could lose them yeah coyotes are a little more resistant to foot damage but we you know, we trapped again with the padded foot old traps, so we very rarely had any issues. So when you did this, when you did your PhD work, what was sort of um, like what was the biggest takeaway from it? Everything I, likes turkeys. Everything likes turkeys, and this bird shares space with a lot of things that kill it, whether it be adults or nest. And this now, granted, this was back in the mid to late nineties. And it was kind of startling to me how many animals were within a turkey's home range that would eat it or its nest. And since then, as most folks in the southeast and the east can attest to, you know, predator populations have exploded. I since mean, then they have. Yes. I mean, all all science points to uh, higher raccoon populations, higher meso mammals in general, all of the smaller Mammals, raccoons, opossums, skunks. Explain the term meso mammals. Just a midsize, okay. Just a midsize mammal. Uh, you know, coyotes were were common in Mississippi at that time, but they were just starting to invade the eastern Atlantic states, and they're still not 
at saturation and a lot of the the work I, I do coyote work as well and, and we still see that their territories are not completely like puzzle pieces on the landscape yet there still are voids out there where coyotes are backfilling so we're not we're not at saturation with that predator yet and I, I, to your question it startled me back then how many animals were within a turkey's range that could eat it or its nest and now the predation that we see on nest which is about 80 percent of all our nests are lost Whoa. it it's crazy 80 percent. that's what the thing i wanted to ask you about because i had heard this and i heard a ball this this was a ballpark thing that uh, someone's telling me like as a general rule of thumb 75 percent of the eggs that hit the ground never hatch yep 75 percent of the hatchlings don't hit their first birthday Yep. Of the birds that hit their first birthday, 75% won't see their second birthday. Just saying like ballpark. Yeah. What we see is about 20-ish percent nest success. Now, my work right now... Nest success. Nest success. Uh, My work right now is I do work on a lot of eastern populations, the eastern subspecies. Rios are a different ball game. I have some work on Rios, but Rios are precipitation driven. So when it's really wet... A hatch is better. But just talking about Easterns, we see about 20% nest success. And what, um, what classifies success? It hatches one or more eggs. One or well, more. That, that's a success no matter what the hell happens to them? Yes. And then it, then it gets more bleak. So you have 20% nest success. And then we see about a third of our broods have at least one poult that, that survives the first month of life. Because we track broods that first month. The assumption is once they get about 28 days old, they're pretty safe. And that, that's a good assumption. For the most part, once they start roosting off the ground when they're two weeks old, they can, they can evade predators. And by the time they're, you know, bantam rooster-sized chickens at 28 days, they're, they're pretty hardy little, you know, little things. So. It takes them two weeks before they can sleep in a tree? Yeah. They'll climb up shrubbery and things to get off the ground, but it usually takes – and there's some debate, you know, turkeys are like people in some ways. Some grow a little faster than others, and that depends on how much forage they have and the quality of that forage. But some early researchers like Lovett Williams, who was a famous turkey researcher in South Florida, he saw that some of those Osceolas actually would start roosting off the ground eight or nine days after they were hatched. But they're in a, you know, really southern latitude, lots of bugs everywhere, they grow fast, but we typically see about 12 to 14 days they'll start roosting off the ground with mom, and at that point, they're they're in pretty good shape. So she leaves them on the ground at night when they're She young. stays with them. Oh, she, 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 she stays them. with them and broods them under her at night, and then once she can get off the ground, she roosts with them, but again, they're, they're right beside her and right under her, particularly during inclement weather. They're tucked up under her. And then as they get bigger, obviously they can't do that. So they just kind of assimilate themselves in in the tree around her. And then as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, that's when they start kind of moving out on their own. And, and you'll flush, a, you know, let's just say we walk in on a brood that's 25 days old. There may be two or three in this tree and one in the tree beside it and three that are on the branch under her. And so they're kind of, you know, in the area around her. When when mom's on the ground with the uh, with the clutch, do you, do you find that she, like hens are getting killed more when they're on the ground 
with the young? Absolutely. Yeah. When, you know, if you think about it from mom's perspective, she needs to be off the ground as well. I mean, that's why, that's why a 10 pound bird sleeps in a tree. It's because of predators. So that 14 days, she's much more vulnerable to being killed while she's brooding. Gotcha. So it, it behooves a turkey to grow fast, quick, and get off the ground. So from a, a brood habitat perspective, they need lots and lots of forage so they can grow quickly and, and start roosting off the ground gotcha. for sure. But of those 20, this is the, you ever heard the analogy about the golden egg, you know, the, the, the probability that one of those eggs becomes a gobbler. So take 80% of your nest and they're gone. Of those 20%, only a third of those that hatch produce one poult or more that survives the first month. So if you do the math there, what we see from about East Texas all the way over to South Carolina is that about 7% of nests produce one or more poults that survive. No. Yes. And then you start thinking about the probability that one of those birds is going to end up being an adult tom that you hunt in the spring. The odds are stacked really steep against that that happening. It's pretty remarkable. For every for every like rope dragon mature bird out there, hundreds have died. Yes. Yes. And a hundred have died or whatever. And that those issues are what has driven research, particularly the past decade. Because back in the 90s, if you picked up literature on turkeys, you would see nest success of 30, 40, 50 percent. Times were good. Turkeys were hatching everywhere. Oh, so hold on. But that, so that you believe that was, those were true numbers. It wasn't because the research was bad. Uh, I think, no, not bad. I think what we ended up doing years ago is we we weren't able to track nesting as well as we can now. We missed birds that mm-hmm. would incubate because the GPS that we have now is so clear. I mean, we can see with utmost clarity when she starts incubating. So we missed some nests back 20 years ago because they would start incubating and we wouldn't know it. Sure. But so what you you tended to overestimate nest success because you missed some nests that were fail, you know, that failed. Yeah. Oh, but, but, I'm but, with you. but still, the numbers were better then, and and you consistently saw it across studies. It wasn't like one or two studies, you know, would say, "Oh, it's forty percent." Most studies were showing much better nest success than we see now, and that's kind of that's one of the the things that prompted the eastern, southeastern slash states to say we have an issue because we started noticing declines in and nest success, and, and that popped up from uh, brood surveys. Basically, all the states in the, in the southeast have brood surveys that they conduct where agency personnel and the public record how many hens they see in the summer that have poults with them. Mm-hmm. And if you look across the last 20 years, it's been declining every year without exception. So this has been a problem that's actually been ongoing and it was right under our nose and we didn't see it because like we've talked about, there were turkeys everywhere and harvest was really good. And, and then about the late 2000s, you know, 2009, 2010, the Southeast states. And then about a year or two later, the kind of the Northeast states and the Midwestern states kind of put their heads together and said, you know what, we're kind of all in this together. We're seeing fewer poults per hen 
or fewer hens that have poults in the summer, which the only possible scenarios there is fewer are hatching and or more broods are dying. Yeah. That's the only thing that could translate to fewer birds being observed that have poults with them. And that kick-started some research that I think has really opened people's eyes to the fact that this bird is, is suffering in areas and it's not obviously not uniform. I mean, turkeys are doing really well in some places, particularly urban, kind of suburban areas you hear about. Lower predator loads, too. Exactly. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dogs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dogs' place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds, this app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. 
So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20-plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Do you think there's a lot more predators on the ground because we've had low fur prices for 30 years? There's no question. There's no question. I mean, you uh-huh. if you if you go back and look at you know pelt prices, people actually trapped raccoons and made money off of them. And you you can't give raccoons. Oh, it used, yeah, it used to be like if you found like a coon den tree in the mid 80s, it was a big damn deal. Yeah. And you'd have to, you know, get there on opening day because someone else is going to get there ahead of you. There yeah. was a big raccoon, nighttime raccoon hound hunting culture in Pennsylvania yeah. when I grew up. Same thing right Nobody, yeah. nobody does it. No, anymore. the the guys with hounds would, would mop up yep. more than trappers. But I mean, yeah, but you could sell a coon for 40 bucks. Yeah. In those days. Yeah. And you, you can't, you can't give raccoons away at this point. So there's no motivation. And then as you know, as we all sitting here know, that. You know, that that trade has declined. I mean, there aren't trappers being recruited into the ranks of, of people that would go catch fur bears like there were years ago. You put all that together, and, and what we've learned about some of these predators, for instance, raccoons, is you, you'll see uh, five or six males sharing the same home range. Mm-hmm. So this thought that, well, you just go trap one male and you got him, that's that's garbage. There could be half a dozen there. Um, they have all sorts of kind of unique breeding strategies. Males will den together, which is pretty interesting. Again, they share home ranges. You see, you know, females that have pretty high litter survival rates because what would eat a raccoon, right? Great horned owl. Other than a great horned owl. <laughs> How uh, does a raccoon kill a turkey? Um, we don't, we don't see that raccoons are a big predator of adults. They can't, oh. they can kill adults. They will kill poults. Basically, if you think really young poults, that yeah. they can kind of disrupt the brood and and gotcha. get get a poult off by themselves. But, but they like to hunt the nest down, right? They do, but we found through some experimental work, they don't actually go looking for nest. They just end up in areas where nests are, and most of that is because raccoons in the spring and summer are looking for soft mast. So, like in the south, that would be blackberries, dewberries, you know, those types of things. They're looking for that. Invertebrates, um, amphibians, anything that they can kind of get their hands on. And a lot of that ends up being in areas that are dense, shrubby, brushy, grassy sites. Well, turkeys end up nesting there and the raccoons stumble across the nest. And and raccoons, once they find the nest, they'll, they'll consume. Usually, if they don't consume the entire clutch, they'll move eggs away from the the nest bowl and consume them, and then come back. So within short order, the entire clutch is lost. Now, here's a research question for you: How in the world do you? How can you say that you don't know that they're looking for turkey nests? We actually set up an experiment where we supplementally fed raccoons, and we did this to 
look at how it, it's, it's called area-restricted searching. Basically, just think about it like this. So predators walking across the environment, and all of a sudden cues in on something that, hey, it's a smell, a sight, a sound, something that I can eat. So they do. They start doing this kind of circuitous movements back and forth, back and forth through the same area hunting for whatever it is that they detected. Well, we needed to figure out what that looks like in raccoons. So we set up this this experiment where we tracked raccoons and we stood there with them all night, basically. They were wild, but we stood out there with them and tracked them as they exhibited this behavior. And then we went back out on the landscape and had turkeys marked, had nesting place, you know, places where nests were located. And we tracked raccoons that were not supplementally fed. And it clearly demonstrated that those raccoons are not going to areas where nests are and then start, they don't start oh, searching. I'm with you. They just start bebopping across the environment and all of a sudden they would end up in something that would look kind of like a turkey nesting area and they'd start foraging. But most of the time they ended up in areas that were not nesting cover. They ended up in, in areas that were more wet that a lot of our birds didn't nest in, which led us to to conclude that most of the time when they bump into a nest, it's just them walking from one point to the next and they encounter something, I suspect it's smell. You know, they get some whiff of there's a bird over there on the ground. I'm going to go check it out. And of course, when they, when they flush a bird, I mean, turkeys are pretty, they, some turkeys can be pretty resilient to nest predators. They'll attack snakes and uh, we have pictures of Gould's birds that sit while foxes nose up under them on the nest. No. Yeah. But that's not uniform. So a lot of times, you know, as you know, you flush a bird off the nest when you're hunting or something. That's what happens when a raccoon approaches. They don't abandon that nest if they get bumped off of it. They, they will. If they it's will. we find that typically their abandonment is if it's early in incubation. If if she's only tied some investment into that clutch for a few days and you flush her off, there's a pretty good chance she doesn't come back. Just yeah. for getting flushed off. Because mm-hmm. I, I, it's happened to me a couple of times where I've almost stepped on a nest, and I'm always, I've wondered, will she come back to that clutch yeah. of eggs? Yeah, I, I had this is a true story. I, I had a bird back in the '90s that had a her uh, radio telemetry unit was faulty, so I couldn't tell how close I was to her. And that's back in the day that we would approach to within a certain distance and kind of put a flag so that when she hatched, we could go find the nest. And inevitably, I would try to. This bird, I went into her, her nest five days after she, she started incubating, and I went to put the flag in the tree, and she got up right under me. And I was like, ah, oh, damn, you know. Well, she's not coming back. Well, she came back. So one day, about 20 days in, I drive down the road. I get out of the truck. I check her. She's, she's standing there, and she flushed from the road. I have no idea why. She's like 30 meters from the road, and she flushed off the nest. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. She did that every day from day 20 until she hatched. Every day I'd pull up there, she'd flush off the nest. Or she, if she didn't flush, she would run. Like I'd actually listen to the signal and think, that bird just got up again and started walking off of that clutch. And I'm 30 meters away from her. No idea why she did that. Usually once you start flushing the bird, that it's over. You know, they don't, and it, that makes sense if you think about it. If you're early in incubation, something flushes you, 
Eh, that's not a good spot. You better oh, go, go. Yeah, you don't have a lot invested in it. Yeah. You know, better yet, you need to live. And turkeys are a long-lived bird, relatively speaking, so they need to live to the next year. So if you haven't invested much in that clutch, you know, the sage decision is to go somewhere else and either try again or just quit for the so year. So if it's early enough in the season, they'll just lay another clutch. Yeah, they'll just re-nest, yeah. And that how, that depends on a lot of different things, but but yeah. How many how many attempts can they make we've, in the spring? We've had four. The most are, if they try more than once, it's it's just twice. You'll get the occasional bird that will try three times, and we've had one, you know, a few that did four, but most are one or two. A minute ago, you just said that they're a long-lived bird, but then when you lay out all the ways they get killed and the frequency with which they get killed, uh, it would feel that they're not a long-lived bird. And but- that and that that's part of that's part of the the conundrum here, if you will. This bird is supposed to live a long time. They're supposed to live, the, the hens anyway, are supposed to live through multiple breeding cycles. Otherwise, you, you don't have a shot at being successful. So this bird needs to live years given their high predation rates on their, on their nest. In order for it to replace itself. Right, because if she doesn't produce, if you think about it, if she doesn't produce one or more hen poults that survive to be her age, then the flock declines through time. And from a male's perspective, you know, these toms, their reproductive success is driven by how many times they can breed. I mean, that's they need to breed with as many hens to be successful in their life as possible. So if he only lives two years, he's he doesn't have near the reproductive success if he lives five years. So this bird is supposed to live longer than, say, a lot of – I mean, they're a large-bodied bird, and large-bodied birds are supposed to live longer. And and what we see with these hens is a lot of these hens have the strategy during incubation of living. They spend more time away from their nest than other hens. They may be in areas that are more open where they can see. There appears to be a strategy within every population we studied where some of these hens, they want to live. Their Their strategy is nest where I can see – evade predation if it if it shows up and try again next year whereas other hens forego that and they tend to be hens that die on the nest but they're more successful so there's there's kind of two different strategies in these populations the strategy of live until next year that works if the bird lives multiple years oh because all right because her strategy of live till next year decreases the likelihood like she's more playing her own game rather than protecting the thing. That's right. Yeah, she, she's it, it, she's more invested in herself than she is the clutch. Got you. Because you know we're talking it's about like a, a bird. mother. Like your house catches on fire, you got the ones that go in and get her kids, and you got the ones that just book. Yeah, and what we see is the birds that are less invested in their nest. They when they take recesses, when they take breaks during the day. They go farther away. They spend more time away from the clutch. And that makes sense if you think about it because when you're sitting there, you're vulnerable. But when you're off, you know, turkeys have a periscope head. When they're off standing around foraging, they're they're hypervigilant. They can see, they hear. And when she's stuck there on that clutch, she's at the mercy of, you know, things around her. Whereas she, when she's away from the clutch, she's much safer. 
the birds that end up dying as an aside, almost all of the birds that we have be killed during nesting are killed at the nest. Almost all of them are killed at the clutch. So there's a predator that is detecting her on the ground, approaching her, and then killing her as she's trying to escape from the nest. Almost all of them. What's uh, What's an old hen? Well, one problem is in the wild, we unless we have banded known age birds, we don't know how old they are. We just know that they're either juvenile, so they were hatched this year, or they're not. Now, we've had birds. I, I had a bird back years ago in in Mississippi, actually, that we know was nine years old based on we used to put wing tags on them. And she was nine. They're, if and you, that was in a hunted population of birds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was she was pretty slick. Um, we we see routinely, you know, we'll get band returns of toms that are five, six, seven, eight, really years old. We had one that was in killed. hunted populations. Mm-hmm. We had one the other last wow. year. It's like was, sneaky Pete, man. That was <laughs> that was eight. So yeah, we we get some older birds, but by and large, you say you had a gobbler in a hunted population lived to be eight. Yeah, yeah. What the hell is he doing? He's pretty slick. He doesn't make a lot of noise. No. No, <laughs> he's probably not doing too much breeding, huh? If he is, he's he's using an alternative strategy for sure. <laughs> you know, he's one of those gobblers that gobbles and then catches his, you know, sticks his his foot in his beak, if you will, to shut himself up. You know, don't don't call too loud, don't call too often. Uh, Yanni's got a question. Well, yeah, are we are you happy? No, with... I want, no, I want you do the question you just wrote. Oh. But because I think it has to do with that, how hunters think they can so reliably age males. Sure. Um, I was just going to ask, like, what environmental, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, what makes it? What makes a long turkey spur? Subspecies, for one thing, that's a an overriding factor. Is you tend to see patterns across the different subspecies. Osceolas have the longest by far. Then easterns and then your western subspecies tend to be much shorter. Can I tell you why that is? Sure. In hunting lore, it has to do with how rocky the ground yeah. is. Yeah. Is that legit? I think there's some truth to that. Huh. Also, think yeah. it's some of I've it. I've been is, telling people that for a long time. <laughs> I, I think some of that is probably just lore. You know. You do. Um, you know, if you, for as far as aging goes, and and I may be crucified for saying this, but I'm right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, you don't want to crucify an innocent man. <laughs> yeah, you know? if you if you go back and look at texts from years ago, they would tell you spur length is a re- reliable age sure. indicator, and it is not. We oh we, no, that's not true. Cause it, we can tell he's one, he's two, he's no, three, he's four. I can promise you, you can't. <laughs> you cannot. We we have known aged birds that that were banded as jakes that end up. At two years old, with inch and a quarter spurs, some with seven eighths inch spurs, we see. We had a five year old killed that had three quarter inch spurs. It, yeah, but hold on, no, because he ground them down on rocks. No, he was an, <laughs> he was an eastern. He was an eastern, so not many rocks. But is it true or not true that it takes him to be? And I know this is gospel. <laughs> that when he gets a pointy spur mm-hmm. that you could prick your finger with, that's because he's three. That is false. <laughs> so what yeah. you're saying is it's kind of the same as guys looking at antlers and being like, that buck's four. Yes. Because he's a six point. Right. Yes. And, you, and the other thing you have to think about, just like 
you know, with deer, you're dealing with genetic issues, you're dealing with uh, body condition and things that, that would facilitate one animal growing bigger, faster than another. So the bottom line is spurs are, are not, I mean, about the only thing a spur will tell you is you're looking at a really young bird or not. That's pretty much all it can tell you. What about beard? Beard is, is useless. Really? Yep. About the only thing beards will tell you in general is if you combine them with the primaries on their wings having bars and or their tail feathers, you can pretty much back your way into that's a Jake and therefore his beard is quite short versus that's a Tom and he has a longer beard because you see all sorts of issues with beards. You see freezing, you see mites, you see... um Birds that are in brushier climates tend to wear their beards off more than other populations. So beards really don't tell you a whole lot beyond what you can get from their primaries and their, their tail feathers. And then the tail- well, here's why a little bit that's a lie. Because have you ever seen a Jake throw like a nine-inch beard? No, and that's what I'm saying. For In general, you look at that you know four or five-inch beard, and you're probably looking at a Jake just confirm, like that's what I teach students, just always confirm with their tail feathers and their primaries. Gotcha. If those last two primaries are barred, have have barring all the way to the end of those primaries, and they have a little tiny beard, that's an adult that just has a short beard. But on a Jake, uh, on a Jake the center feather, two, it's a two center it's the feathers outer, of their yeah, fan? Yeah, the outer two primaries of their wing are not barred. They have black ends, huh. black tips. Really? Yep. I didn't know that one. And then their tail fan. Is that true about the tail fans? Yeah, the, because they molt beginning with the center feathers of the tail. So there's 18 feathers there. So they begin molting from the center, and then they molt out. So that's what causes that notched-looking appearance. The in two a, longer feathers yeah, in the center. So the later you kill a Jake in the spring, the more likely he is to have the notch is bigger. It's not just the center two feathers. It'll be the four, six, okay. eight. And then by the summer, he's replaced all 18 of those feathers. At huh, that, the notch gets more pronounced as the spring goes on? It gets wider. The The width of the notch oh. gets wider because he's molting those outermost feathers. I wish we could explain this to people. Uh, I wish we could explain this. I think he's doing a fine job. No, it's, people who never even looked at a turkey's tail. I have a fan on my desk. Yeah, so just look at if you if you want to ex- if kind of think about it visually, just look at the the tail from the front when he's fanned out. When he's fanned out and look at the center two that are directly over his back. Okay. Go straight up from the base of his tail. That's the two that he starts. That's the first two he molts. So but that means they're long or they're, short? They're longer. Okay. So he molts from a juvenile plumage into his adult plumage, and the adult plumage is the longer feathers. Okay. So he's replacing shorter feathers with longer feathers. Gotcha. And as he replaces the shorter feathers working out from the center, that's why that notch gets wider and wider and wider because it's working. It's what the longer feathers are replacing the shorter feathers as you work to the outside of the fan as it's fanned out. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, uh, but will he ever by the end of the season? He'll he'll never like the way most seasons work. He's always going to have lopsided tail. Yes, as a Jake, he won't get there during season. Yeah, they get there during the summer. Okay, they finish that molting of their tail during the summer. They also molt those primaries during the summer. So by the time they pop in as a two year old, they have the the full fan that we know, and their primaries are all barred. 
Um, and that's diagnostic. Yes, right? that is foolproof. That's the, that's the two ways. You know, I, I teach students. Don't worry about the spur. Don't worry about the beard. If you want to look at them, great. But if you really want to age turkeys, you look at their primaries and their tail fan. And that's only to age them one year one. or more than one year. Yep. Yep. Because what turkeys do, they, you know, once they go through that first molt to become an adult, they then continuously molt a little bit at a time. So they, they're always going to look like an adult once they're about a year and a half old. Yeah. So you can't tell uh you can't tell a four year old from a five year old. No. No. Yeah, he's got big spurs. Yeah. Big long beard. <laughs> big long big, big long beard, big long spurs. Or not. Maybe short beard, short spurs. It's, it's a crapshoot. Hey, uh who pays for all the research? Mostly state agencies. Um most of my work is is funded by Pittman Robertson funds that Is that I, right? Uh, yeah. That that hunters are contributing to their state coffers. That money then goes to agencies which earmark it for partially for research. And then I work under contracts with state agencies to do the work. Nonprofits like, you know, NWTF, they also provide a little bit of money. But by and large, I mean, we're talking these are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do these studies and it it's mostly almost entirely driven by agency funding. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, you've been doing a lot of work on gobbling. Yes. Yes. There's a thing that a lot of times people will come, like hunters, dudes like me, will attribute low gobbling on some particular Mm -hmm. weekend. Mm -hmm. No one was gobbling because there's a lot of hunting pressure. Yep. But what brings that to what makes me curious about that is that I remember talking to a, a former turkey researcher. No, no, no. He was a state agency guy who did a ton of work, but he had to do some turkey work. He was talking about they had they had collars one time on five gobblers, or transmit GPS mm-hmm. units glued into the feathers, I believe, on five gobblers, and they were fine all winter. Spring came, they all got killed by bobcats. Mm-hmm. Um, you were just mentioning that uh, great horned owls will smack them more once they start gobbling, right? So if all these predators, na- like native predators that the turkeys have always coexisted with, if all these predators are queuing in on gobbling and it makes the, the toms more vulnerable, mm-hmm. is the added pressure of humans queuing in on gobbling enough to like tip the scales? Yes, it is. Absolutely. What we see, so we track gobbling using these song meters. They're called song meters. They're just... Uh, boxes that we put in a tree. We put a microphone 30 feet up to get above kind of the vegetation, you know, on the ground. And that thing listens all all day, and it records all ambient sound hmm. in an area several hundred yards around it. And then we run... And it, the, th- that can detect, like, there's software that picks the gobbles out of that? Exactly. Or, so yeah. we run the data through a software package. It extracts the, the gobbles out. And like we were talk- talking about earlier, it also extracts crow calls and owl calls. And so we go through and we listen to verify that it's a gobble or not. And then we can track gobbling activity you know, through time from weeks before the season starts to, to the end. And, and we, we do it all the way until the end of June. And what we see very clearly is that birds start gobbling – in, at least in the southeast, they start gobbling first of March. 
it really ramps up before the season starts. And then when hunting starts, it takes a nosedive. And if it's heavily hunted sites, it may stop, like entirely stop. And if it's not a heavily hunted site. Entirely stop. Yes. Yeah. We just published two papers. Like when they're not even ripping one in the dark. No. In fact, um, two papers that we just published, um, we showed the gobbling activity in there. And it by April 15th on that site, those, it was two study sites, with the exception of just a couple of days where we detected a dozen or so gobbles, it was zero. Like these birds stopped gobbling. And then- And you all, think it's because hunting? There's no question. Is it because the ones that like to gobble a lot got killed or were one individual turkey's like, man, I'm going to chill out because every morning I got some dude standing below my tree? It, it's both. I, if you think about it, it the, all toms are not being killed, right? So even though we see pre- oh, pretty yeah. high harvest rates, they're not all dying. What's happening is it's a combination of vocal birds are being shot, vocal birds are being disturbed and deciding, okay, I'm I'm done. And other birds are just taking the strategy of, you know what, it's not worth it. Every time I I start calling, I get a, a dude that walks under me and starts yelping, or I get a cat that chases me, or I get a coyote that comes into the pasture and runs me off, or I get an owl or whatever. And through time, it just, the bird, I think, the bird sees such a predation risk that they, they adopt a different strategy. And that strategy is call less, move about their range. I, I suspect strut more, drum more, try to use more subtle cues and or go to places where they know they're going to interact with hens and just do it quietly. And, that, and that's what we see. The, the interesting thing is on we also have gobbling data on a non-hunted site, uh, the Savannah River site, which is one of the very few places in the south and southeast that that there's no hunting, and it, is it like a park or it's a um, it's a nuclear plant basically. It's oh. Department of Energy, so it's about two hundred thousand acres, very limited hunting on one little chunk of it, and no hunting on the rest. And we see that gobbling does not do that. They gobble all spring, no, as you would expect. And we also have a wildlife management area where they're only allowed to hunt two days. And I bet you you can predict before I say it what happens. They gobble their heads off during the week, and then when hunters show up on Friday and Saturday, gobbling tanks. No way, really? Yeah. And then, Just the increased activity. Yep. And Cars, then, and parking. Then, yep. And then they pick back up around Tuesday, and Tuesday, Thursday, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is pretty good, and then Friday it tanks again, and, and you see this pattern through the season just like that. There's There's no question this bird detects, it perceives the risk that we – uh, put on them on the landscape when hunting is at a heavy rate. You know, when there's lots of hunters out there, there's no question. The data clearly show that they they perceive that as a risk and they behave accordingly. Are there are we part of the problem? I mean, of course, we're part of the problem because we kill turkeys. But do our activities? I, I guess it'd be this: Are there hens that don't get bred because we're interrupting their cycle too much during the breeding season? We don't see many hens that don't initiate clutches. So they're being bred. Um, What we do see is that there are some infertility rates in some populations where some of the eggs, you know, say one or so in every clutch is infertile. We also see, which I think is more problematic, that 
in some of these populations that are that are heavily hunted, the nesting season is taking 65 to 80 or 90 days, and meaning these hens are starting to breed at, say, late March, early April, and there are still clutches hitting the ground in July, hmm. which... Puts those hens in a bad position, or puts those poults in a bad spot, right? It puts the poults in a bad spot. If they don't have enough time to get big. Yeah, and if you think about it from a predator standpoint, it puts nest on the landscape scattered through time instead of a big pulse of nest out there at once. Predator, that's called predator swamping. Yes, right? yeah. so there's no swamping in, in in our population. So what happens is you have, for instance, I just showed, I just gave a talk at the in Arkansas to to their commission, and and I showed a figure where we tracked the same group of hens throughout the nesting season, this one bunch of hens that were one social group. They were all caught together, so they're all kind of one group. And the first hen starts, and she loses her clutch, and she tries again a few weeks later, and she loses that clutch, and she tries again a third time. It was 65 days across that period. Well, she didn't start until the I think it was April the 3rd or 4th was the first day. So if you think about it, she's on into June before she's trying a third clutch. And even if that hatches, those birds are behind the eight ball compared to a, a clutch that hatches April 20th. When winter hits. Yeah. I've got a question related to that breeding disruption regarding like how seasons are structured. Because mm-hmm. you'll hear people say in, in many states the season starts too early. Yep. Like in Pennsylvania, it doesn't open until May 1st. So they've got all of April to do their thing. Mm-hmm. And I think they do that to give them time to breed. Yes. But here in Montana, it starts, what, Giannis, like 11th the 11th year. of April. And granted, it's, you know, a different climate. But do you, do you think that those early starts are, pro- are could be a problem? Yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think some historical perspective is would be good. So back 30 years ago, there was a guy named Bill Healy who's who's retired now. He he was a famous turkey researcher and he's a great guy and he this was 70s, 80s, 90s. He was asked by the Northeast states to write a set of recommendations for timing hunting seasons. And he very clearly noted in this document that is widely used and cited that you do not shoot this bird in the spring, you do not shoot toms until most, and he left that a bit vague, most breeding has occurred. And he goes on to say, to make sure you've hit the sweet spot, just time it when incubation, you know, peaks in incubation. So the bottom line is, Start removing toms when a lot of your hens are already bred and on the nest. That reduces illegal kill of hens because they're sedentary. And those toms have already bred those hens, so there are some that are expendable at that point. And by and large, the Northeast states accepted those recommendations. If you, you just mentioned Pennsylvania, Michigan, a lot of the Northeast states, their their seasons don't start until May. And the Southeast states have largely entirely ignored that. If you look across the South, uh, seasons open three to four weeks before peaks in incubation, and that's uniform across states with very few exceptions. Louisiana has a little later opening date. Uh, Arkansas has a later opening date. But by and large, 
you have states opening weeks and weeks before incubation peaks. And what that does, the, the research, we're just trying to grasp, kind of put our heads around this, but here's my thinking. So, and, and Bill pointed to this in, in his writing. So you have these dominant toms, and we don't know who they are. We don't know who the dominant toms are in a population. But what we clearly do understand is that you have these groups of toms that breed a group of hens, right? So you've um, so turkeys use a mating strategy that's like a lek. So you know what sage grouse do, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so sage grouse are all out displaying for each other, and all the males are there together so they can see each other. But what turkeys do is more of an exploded lek. And all that means is you take that sage grouse lek and kind of blow it up on the landscape where you've got pockets of turkeys across the landscape. And they maintain contact with each other through gobbling. They don't see each other like a sage grouse. They hear each other. And that gobbling activity maintains those leks. So if you go out and you hunt Merriam's or Rio's and even Easterns, if, if there's a lot of birds, you'll hear this gobble over here, gobble over there, gobble over there. That's those exploded leks that are calling to each other saying, I'm still here. I'm still here. I, so each one's kind of got his zone and yes. they're telling each other, yes. don't come here. I'm, I'm, I'm here. here and I have my hens with me and I'm going to breed them. Within that group of toms that are, that are in that little exploded lek, there's one breeder. There's a dominant breeder. And the others are not always breeders and in some cases are not breeders. So you have one tom and he is the breeder. He's breeding with those hens that are around him and his brothers, his siblings, or toms that he grew up with as a poult. So he was hatched and, and amalgamated into the same brood back years ago, he's been spending times with these these other toms since he was a poult. These are the groups of jakes that you see on the landscape running around. Those group of jakes all hung around together, and then they get older together. And as they get older together, they have an established hierarchy. There's one guy that's at the top of this ladder, and we've all seen this. I mean, and they fight constantly to maintain these, these hierarchies. So you have this one breeder, and you have this group of hens. And if we go in, say, a month early, and we remove that dominant tom, which we've, we've clearly seen early in the season, dominant toms are more easily harvested than they are later in the season. There's been a, a number of studies showing that. So if we go in and we remove that dominant tom, and I, I, I'll be honest, I'm guilty of this. I used to think years ago, well, well, hell, the next guy will just step up. Sure, That's not how it works. So this, this researcher, Bill, um, I spent some time in his house with he and his wife. He used to imprint birds to himself, right? He imprinted them as poults, and then they moved around. He he basically took these turkeys and he observed them. And what he told me was that these birds, you they have their pecking orders like a ladder. There's a guy on the top step, and then there's a bunch of steps under him. If you remove the top step, the second bird just doesn't step up. They tear the whole ladder apart, and they start over. And somebody figures out who's the dominant tom. No kidding. And meanwhile, what is the hen doing? Okay, so you remove the dominant tom. That's the one through sexual selection she's already picked. That's the top guy. So if you remove him too early, you're expecting her to just say, well, okay, well, hell, he's good enough. Number two is fine. That's not the way sexual selection works. So you see this in prairie chickens. You see it in fallow deer. You see it in sage grouse. Species that use lecking strategies, if you just go in and remove a bunch of these males, 
the females don't just breed with the next guy standing there. They go evaluate everybody all over again, which they've been doing for weeks before we, we shoot them. And all of a sudden, he's gone. Well, if he's gone, I need to go back through my checks and balances and figure out who's the most fit Tom standing here, and then I'm going to breed with him. It just doesn't happen the next day. What about are deer different than that? The work on fallow deer has shown they do the exact same thing. Okay. So, so they reshuffle. They, they do. And the work on fallow deer has shown, which is kind of crazy, is that some of these females delay breeding so long that they actually, some don't breed. Like they just can't figure out who the, the, the best buck is. So they just stop and, and they move on. And again, we don't see that in turkeys. We, we see that most of them try, they, they lay a clutch of mostly fertile eggs. So they're being bred. But the thinking, and, and I'm, not just, I'm not the only one that's tooting this. There, there, are, there are many managers in the South and East in particular that have discussed this over the past few years that, that maybe what we're doing is we're disrupting breeding to the point where there, there are these subtle effects to populations that are contributing, they're not the cause, but are contributing to some of these declines we're seeing because we're taking these dominant toms out of these leks too early. And in so doing, we are compromising the hen's ability to pick the best tom who theoretically also has the most fit sperm, and we're removing him because what she's supposed to do is she supposed to breed with a dominant tom, and then she's supposed to be able to go find other dominant toms. So there's good evidence showing that these hens will visit multiple legs. They don't just stay there. Some of them will actually go and find other toms and copulate with them. So what she's doing there is she's taking sperm and she's storing it, which turkeys do. They store mm-hmm. sperm, and I basically liken it to Tupperware containers. They're putting sperm. Yeah. Think about a turkey Tupperware. You've got all these tubules inside of her body that are storing sperm. And when it's time to produce a clutch and lay an egg, she re- her body allows that sperm to be released. There is, there is mate competition right there. The best sperm wins, right? The most vi- viable. Because she's got sperm for multiple males multiple potentially. Ma- maybe. Maybe. And if she does, then that should confer her better fitness and her clutch better fitness. We see this in mallards. We see it in the waterfowl world is, is replete in science showing this. They're supposed to be multiple males in clutches. And there's some turkey work previously showing that a lot of clutches in a, in a population of Rios that wasn't hunted did have multiple toms. We're collecting this data now in hunted populations, and we don't have the results yet, but hopefully we will soon. But I kind of use the analogy, if you were to ask a duck hunter, if I were to give you the opportunity to go to North Dakota and shoot mallards in May, what would you think? And the, the analogy is, well, that's when they're in their courtship flights, right? So you have five or six drakes that are flying around harassing one hen, and she's supposed to be able to pick the best males out of that courtship flight, and she will breed with more than one male. You wouldn't even consider harvesting males out of courtship flights. You kill deer during their courtship different different mating system. Yeah. So if you if you look at turkeys, they're the only game bird in the conterminous United States that are hunted while they're breeding. They're mm. the only one. No, that's a good point. So So and, should we be hunting them in the summer? No. No, we just need to 
this, I think the science is going to demonstrate that we just need to be more thoughtful, which we were warned about years ago. Again, this is, this is not new, that we need to time our seasons more commensurate with the bird and not our own desires. Oh, I want to get out there as soon as the snow melts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I, I've been there. It's like, well, they're gobbled out. They're bred out. And, and that, Dude, here, yeah, here, you know, like we're pretty extreme north. I mean, we're, you're dodging snow patches and being in snowstorms. They haven't even started breeding yet. You right. can't, you've right. been, I've been out turkey hunting, but there's not a lick. Of, well, even down in Missouri, remember? Not a lick of green. Mm-hmm. And I th- It's early. I think it ultimately hinges on the harvest rate. Because if you go into a population up here, and let's just say you kill 2 or 3% of all your toms a month before breeding, who cares? Probably. But it's a lot these, higher now. In these southern populations and eastern populations, if you're going in and removing 30, 40, even 50% of your toms, which we see on some areas, prior to breeding or during the kind of the midst of breeding, frankly, to me, it's nonsensical to think it wouldn't have some effect. It's just what effect does it have? That's kind of what we're trying to put our hands around. You know why I think listening to you is important for people? is because you're not a state agency person. Right. But you're a turkey hunter. I am. and I Because a state agency guy's got to be careful not to piss everybody off. And I don't. You can pit, you can afford to piss people off. I can. But then we know your motivations are pure because you like to hunt turkeys. That's why I give what you say extra validity. I I appreciate that, and and I that is true. I mean, I kind of you look can at, be the bearer of bad news. And I, it's not going to screw. I you're not can. Gonna, your your voicemail is not going to blow up with irate. It will customers. I mean, I I have people that attack me on social media every week. I post every every Tuesday, Turkey Tuesday. I post. You know, science tidbits every. Yeah, what are they? Yeah, well, I want to talk about Turkey Tuesday, but what are they? What's the what? They they don't think you like to hunt turkeys. They, I think, you know, honestly, Steve, I, I think there's people out there that look at biologists in general, and you've had. Oh, I've yeah. listened. I've listened to some of your previous podcasts, and and I think people look at me or Jim Heffelfinger or some of these people that that are biologists, and they think. Well, they don't hunt. They're not hunters. They they don't. They're not in the trenches where we are. And like I said, I grew up hunting. I mean, the reason I'm where I'm at is because I loved to hunt everything, and I was a steward of the outdoors. I, I soaked up everything I could, and then I, I fast forward, you know, 25 years, and I look at my my 18 year old, and I'm thinking, is he going to have the opportunities to hunt turkeys or any species that I had? And it and if if I shake my head and say no, then it's a failure on my part. It's a failure on our part to grasp what effect we may be having. And I tell people, you know, we turkeys and other species are facing all sorts of problems. It's not just, it's not a hunting issue, habitat and predators and these things we've talked about. But to me, we have to do due diligence and understand what effect we might be having. And if there's something we can control then we need to try because I really look at a lot of the species that we hunt and I think if if they're not here when my grandkids come along in the numbers that they are now or were, then it's been a failure on my watch and that's that's tough to take. It's tough to stomach. Especially I think when you're when you're pointing at it, when you're looking at a game management problem and you're finding solutions that don't entail screwing ourselves over, mm-hmm. um that's not that hard of a pill to swallow. Right. 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 
If yeah. someone's not coming and saying like, listen, man, I'm not saying let's stop hunting turkeys. I'm saying let's think about our start dates. Yeah. Let's be a little more smarter about season structure. I don't know why that should be met with a bunch of hostility. Well, especially when the end result possibly could be that instead of a two turkey bag, li- bag limit, you might have four mm-hmm. or, you know. I, I think I think there's a number of issues there. One is just, you know, we're greedy. I mean, human beings are greedy it it comes down to a no. lot of yeah it's, it's a lot of what well, this is what <laughs> i want and what i hear from hunters is well they're gobbled out if we don't get to hunt them early they i'm not going to get the opportunity well okay so i try to couch this to people and i i think about it in my own as as a person i think okay so in georgia i i, I get about 5 or 6 weeks to hunt and if you told me you only get four, but 10 years from now, instead of going and hearing one bird, which is about what I hear, or two, that I could hear four, I personally would look at that and go, I'll take that all day long. Um, but the complaints I hear a lot are, well, you're taking my opportunity I've been allowed to hunt turkeys for six or eight weeks my entire life or whatever. And I, I get that. But in the, at the end of the day, I look at it from the standpoint of the resource. And I think, again, we have to do due diligence. And, you know, turkey hunters, I, I'm biased, are one of the most cerebral hunters out there. I mean, they're, they're hunting at a time of the year when you don't hunt other things. So they are solely focused on this bird. And you look at all the gear and the technology, these folks really get into this. And they think about it. And I don't talk to many that don't perceive an issue. Even folks in, in that hunt Rios and Merriams, outfitters that I've been with, that look at this and think, and in, in conversations they go, you know what, come to think of it, I hear a lot fewer birds than I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Still hear a lot of birds but I don't hear or see the number of birds that I used to see. And I've heard some other agency biologists in the Southeast. One is a a really good friend of mine, Charles. And I've heard him say in in open forums, if you don't have a problem right now, just wait. Just give it some time. If you're not seeing declines in your area, just just wait. So how, um, how precipitous are the declines, like, in certain areas and, like, how widespread are the declines? Like, is there certain regions of the country that are seeing more declines than others? Like, how, how, how is it spread across so the, the country? the productivity declines, which, back to what we were talking about earlier, the pulse per hen, has gone down threefold. In, oh. like, in what places? Are across all, the board? All or? of the southeastern states, several of the eastern, more kind of eastern, northeastern states, they're also seeing that decline in productivity. What they're not seeing by and large are drastic declines in harvest. Uh, I suspect they may at some point, but we'll see. And then several mis- Midwestern states have shown the same trend, but it's a little different in the Midwest because you tend to see turkeys more in, a, in that agricultural belt or more in kind of pockets, and they're not they're not heavily hunted in some places, and they, are, and they are in others. And we don't have a good grasp on reproduction in Rios and Merriams and Goulds. We just we don't have those broad data sets. Got to do some at. more work there, huh? We do because yeah. they're roaming larger chunks of land. Or? They're they're less visible. Well, if you think like Rios, for instance, a lot of them live on on private lands that are large tracks and they're, they're everywhere. And 
what we do find from, we've banded thousands of rios in areas that are hunted, and we see really low harvest rates in general. Huh. Some really high in pockets, but by and large across the landscape, really low, single digit percent. And in Easterns, we see- No kidding. Yeah. In Easterns, we see 30 plus percent on almost every population. Wow. Yanni's got a couple for you. I don't even know what the, I don't even know what the hell one means. <laughs> um, Is it a sports question? No. Oh, you looking at? I had I had written down Arkansas versus Wisconsin. <laughs> it seems like, and, and this is just in my little world, but it seems like you hear a lot of griping recently out of Arkansas at, for mm-hmm. what's going on with their turkey population. A lot of people are saying that it's just down and out. And then you go to, and then in Wisconsin, they're killing like what between fifty thousand, forty to fifty thousand turkeys mm-hmm. annually, and just you know it seems to be nuts. Like what's what's sort of like the if can it be possible to put it in a nutshell to say yeah this is why one's doing great and one's not? Yes and no. The yes would be in Arkansas. What you've seen is a a strong precipitous decline in productivity that's been happening for decades. This is not just something that started. It's been 20 years plus of declining productivity to now where in Arkansas, in some areas, they're less than one poult per hen, which means the flock has to be declining Yeah, because a lot of the poults you see are, are males. So in Arkansas, you have a productivity problem to the point where their harvest has declined. They've gone through a number of of season changes. In fact, they've changed their season 20 times in the past 30 years, trying to come up with a sweet spot. And that that was one of the reasons I was there the other last mm-hmm. week was to talk to their biological staff about why would you even consider moving a season later? Like we, the things we just talked about, those are the things that I think people need to hear so that they understand why an early season could be problematic. Not saying it is, but why it could be from the broader sense. So Arkansas is now trying to move to a much later opening date in hopes that most of their breeding has occurred. In fact, I think what they were considering is an April 19th opener, which for the southeast is really late. That that's by far would be the latest, except for some pockets in East Texas that have a, a later April opener. You know, Wisconsin, I think Two things. One, you tended to see that turkey hunting exploded in the southeast long before it did elsewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the northeast states are just now getting, you know, really heavily hunted populations. They've got a lot of toms. they got a lot of birds out there. And to my buddy Charles's point, maybe they just need to wait because if you, if you keep on down this road, you may see problems. Now, the, the good thing about Wisconsin is their their season dates are more appropriately timed with the bird. But they also allow you to kill a shitload of them. Yes, and, and you have it other... says that right in the regs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know what the bag limit specifically is in Wisconsin is, but in some states like Alabama, it's five. I should tell you, it's interesting, Wisconsin. They... Uh... I never thought about how it's interesting until right now, and it might be to do with timing out the breeding because... They got what A B C D E F seasons, Six. right? Six. Six okay. separate weeks. A season opening day is very competitive to draw a tag from a not especially non-resident. You could try for years and not get an yeah, A. Very gotcha. limited hunting pressure. By the time you get to C, which is three weeks in, right? Yep. Then you can pretty much rest assured you'll get you, the tag. You get drawn, right. After D, 
you can hunt all the damn seasons. Right. So they're greatly limiting. Or, or early. They're right. in some way putting a throttle on how many people are out there pounding them opening day, which is what, first, first second week in April? Whatever the hell it is. Yeah. yeah. Very few people. And then by the time you're into mid-late May, they just open the floodgates. But yeah. a lot of people are burned out by then. Yeah. They already got a turkey. And their assistant game bird coordinator is a former student of mine. She actually studied it at Louisiana State University, but I was on her graduate committee, and, and she has sent those regs. Some of the southern states do something similar to that. Like Missouri has their – when their season opens, you can only kill one bird the first week or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. South Carolina just changed their regulations to, to mimic that. They're still opening the 1st of April, but you can only theoretically, legally, you're only supposed to kill one bird early. And then, and obviously that's to delay some harvest on into the, you know, the later part of April. Other states are just moving the season, the entire statewide season. Uh, I I suspect, given the momentum that I've seen and the discussions that I've seen recently, I, I think most states, at least in the Deep South, are considering trying to entertain discussions about bumping it later even if that only means days yeah and you'll get a ball you'll get a, you'll catch they'll catch a bunch of grief too absolutely egghead biologists yes Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them 
to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you can still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Uh, hit him with the other question, Yanni. Uh, back to gobbling, because a lot of some of these states you can't hunt afternoon or one mm-hmm. or four. I mean, we've hunted at least three different states. I think California was like 4 p.m. when we hunted it. Missouri's noon or one, I mm-hmm. think. Else did we hunt last year? It might have been like a one o'clock. Where you had to quit in time. Pennsylvania's time. noon first two weeks. Oh, okay. dude, it helps. Yeah. It, yeah. it keeps people be all sane, man. But it, I don't, I don't like it when I'm there. But man, it keeps you sane. Right, get rest. Right, you sleep. Nice. If not, but dude, you're pulling. You're hunting. You're hunting eighteen hour days. <laughs> yeah. man. I, I, the proponents usually that we've talked to like it because they think that it helps the gobbling. Limits the pressure, helps the gobbling. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? What are they trying to solve? I suspect just pressure. We don't see a lot of gobbling in the afternoon anyway. Um, but I suspect... And when they do, you can't kill them anyway. They're hard to kill at night. I tell you what, I have... <laughs> but go on. Some of us, they <laughs> no, are. I mean the last hour of day, you'll hear some gobbling. I get it. Yeah. But and it, you, get, it, it's and you like, can't help but get all fired up. But if you like review your life, there's not a lot, of, not a lot of death night. dealing happens at 5 p.m. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, going on. Yeah. See, he's by 5 p.m., if he's an hour from the tree, he's already, he's, he has a, he has an agenda. Yeah. I have had tremendous success killing birds one, two, or three o'clock in the afternoon. Oh. If you can get them to gobble, it's money. I suspect the nah, states that's giving, that's giving me chills man. that just open later or, or have that type of season. They're just trying to keep hunters out of the woods and keep the disturbance to a, a minimum. I honestly can't answer your question. I don't know if that translates to any change in turkey behavior because, one, the populations we study don't really – they don't have that. And, two, like I said, very little gobbling happens in the afternoon anyway. So I don't – we would it would the signal would have to be so strong in our data set for us to be able to to detect it because such little gobbling is in that time of day. I'm anyway. with you, right? You know, yeah. there's not that much to disturb anyway. And no. plus, you're saying that there's the daily hunter disturbances there anyways. Yeah, of every morning. Yeah, so you'd have to untangle that too. Yeah, and most of our what we see is most of the the gobbling more than seventy percent is either in the tree 
or within the first hour after they fly down. So they're gobbling early and shutting up. Uh, has anyone done a study like this um, to, to capture this sentiment that I'm going to lay out for you? Like, imagine that you put out an, an electronic caller, the, the hand call, mm-hmm. and you could somehow measure how many gobblers came within some specified uh, distance of, distance of yep. that electronic caller. And then you watch that play out over the spring mm-hmm. and measure that. Like, as the season wears on, are gobblers l- less responsive? Meaning, do they, get, do they get harder and harder to call as the season wears on because they're scared of getting shot? Or is it some other thing at play? If there has been work in that vein, I don't, I'm not aware of Dude, it. Dude, I would be putting that on top of my list of shit to study. I, I think we see that in a lot of populations anyway because – if you if you go to the east or southeast, you see scout you know scouting starts weeks in advance, and I hear you know horror stories I read on social media all the time. You know, hey, I was out scouting. It's a week before the season. Dude pulled into the cul-de-sac up the road from me, hit the box call five times. Bird gobbled. Then he walked in, spooked the bird. Type of thing. The flip flop flasher here has already been out scouting, scaring them all up. <laughs> Didn't make one call though. Oh yeah, just looking. So I, I think looking, seeing where they're at. You you may I I suspect there's some truth to the notion that the more we call, because our calling is often dis- associated with some type of disturbance, whether mm-hmm. we try for that to occur or not, that the bird realizes through time that is not a hen, and even if it is, I'm going to be really cautious. And and we see this in some of our data where we track hunters and toms at the same time. So we put GPS units on the toms, and then we give the hunters. This is my next question. Yeah, and we actually see birds that show up at the site a hunter was at three, four hours later. So the hunter's already left. He's gone. He or she's already back at the truck and going to work. And the tom shows up. Come at, sniffing around. At 1 p.m. Oh, that's a question I was going to ask yeah. you. Like, if, you, if you're in the morning calling to a bird and he just, like, drifts away, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it smart to just sit there? Yes, what we we have mm, repeated science to work. Yeah, we have repeated examples of birds that end up where a hunter was hours hours later. later. Well, that goes back to what you were talking to guy about. That he he talked about how they'll come come back hours after. Right. Yeah, because he heard you. He marked you, even though he's got he's got like his morning agenda, yeah. and then later he's like, oh, but you know what? I'm gonna go and check and, on that one. And if you, you think know. about it, it, it makes complete sense. What we're asking these birds to do is against their ecology. The toms are supposed to stand there and display, and the hens are supposed to go to them. Okay, so that is true. Because that, that was is, one of my questions. Absolutely. You In think, nature, the hen should always go to the gobbler. Yes. Think about the lek. Back to the lek. Those males stand there and display, and the hens come to them. We're okay. asking them to, to flip that. Okay. So if you think about the Tom that wanders off, he's not wandering off. He's going about his business, even if he's not gobbling, and he's displaying, and he's, he's doing his other things because in his world, she's supposed to seek him out. And then three hours later, he goes, you know what? I haven't scored any opportunities doing the route I was going to take, so I'm going to go over there and, and covertly kind of check this area out and see if she's still there. And he doesn't need to gobble to do that. All he's got to do is strut and drum and and look. And if he doesn't see her, he hightails it out of there. He moves on. How well do you think he uh, 
like spatially, how tight is he thinking? As far as where he thinks she is? Yeah. Turkeys have an incredible sense of place. They they know, and this comes from conversations I've had with with Bill, who imprinted those birds. He would take these birds out and let them forage, and then he would take them back. He was the hen. He would take them back to their pen and put them up at night. And when birds would get lost, he, he put radios on them. So his pet birds, he had radios on them. So he would go find them the next morning and, and help them come back home. And what he found is they didn't need any help. So they would take this, this kind of circuitous route while they were foraging, and they'd end up lost, if you will, at night. The next morning, they walked a straight line distance directly back to the pen. Like they knew exactly, exactly which path to take because they knew exactly where they were going. And what he, he likened it to, he said, they have an incredible sense of place. They hear, they know exactly, their mapping system is so acute. They know exactly where they think you are or where their roost is or whatever resources are there. And they know exactly how to get there. So at any given point in time, if that Tom decides he's going back to the place where that hunter is, he knows exactly where that spot is. Is it safe to say they, they won't leave their lex zone, like to go into another gobbler's territory? Like if you're, let's say you're you're hunting and you hear a gobbler on one ridge and then a quarter mile past that, there's a gobble on another <laughs> ridge. Give me the chills. <laughs> like would that second gobbler come into another gobbler's zone? If, if their home range encompasses those other birds which in some cases they do and in some cases they don't. If their home range didn't encompass those birds, it's very likely they're not going to just go wandering. They're going to stay in their range and continue to signal because that's their range. We do see some toms that make some kind of you know, weird movements, particularly when hunters bump them or something. But by and large, this is not a bird, this is not an animal that's just going to abandon its home range and start wandering around. So... I think what's happening is you, you see, like to your point, you've got birds here gobbling and over here gobbling. Well, when this pocket of birds stops gobbling, why would the other birds gobble? If they don't have to go, if there's no gobbling near them, yep. what's their incentive to gobble? So they're lo- once they do, let's say mid-morning, start maybe looking for a hen that they heard a little further away and they're just going back to check that area. Mm-hmm. They're only going to do that like with a with a noise that they heard in their zone. I'm not only, but primarily, yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Talk about what you guys found looking at when you put a uh, GPS tracking devices on hunters. What do hunters do? They hang around the roads. <laughs> you they, don't say. They, uh, You're kidding. They almost all hunter locations we found were within a hundred yards of a road or a path. Yeah, but I mean, like, but in some states, how the hell? You, I mean, it's hard to get that. And we haven't. That work has all been southeastern, eastern stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I mean, it's hard to. There's a lot of roads. There are, and people know they they can skirt down this fire break and hear birds, so they stick to the roads. They stick to the paths, and. What we found recently with some work is when the season starts, turkeys and hunters do the same thing. So folks start going to places where turkeys are. Because they scouted them out or whatever. And then we see this clear divergence. After a week or so of the season, turkeys are doing one thing and hunters are doing something else. In fact, the turkeys are moving away from hunting pressure. 
into human habitation or into like remote areas? Just into other parts of their range where they're not being disturbed as often. Like, but but what, how do you typify what they like to go toward? Just away from roads. Just, oh. Just away from roads. Not into subdivisions. Nope. Just away from roads. And, and that's not all birds. We see some birds that just hunker down and stick it out. And presumably they just quit gobbling and they just hunker and stay there. But we see this divergence in behavior where by the middle of the season, hunters are doing one thing. They're still sticking to the roads. They're behaving the same as they did two weeks prior. Turkeys have changed their strategy. And then by the end of the season, they come back together because hunters by and large quit towards the end of the season and turkeys realize it because there's not as much pressure. So they go back to doing what they were six weeks earlier. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Definitely pressure sensitive. We got a email. No, no, it was I can't remember if it was the article. I think it was the article someone sent us that in this state here in Montana, they've had, I think in the last two years, like 24 requests. You know what I'm talking about? Of citizens demanding GPS tracking data on game <laughs> animals. Really? And they have little choice but to give it to them. They have to mm-hmm. give it up. And, and they're, they so people are like, hey, I want to know where there's a bull elk in right. such and such area wearing a radio collar. Right. And, and I, apparently, apparently the way it works, they have to divulge it. It's public information. Sure. Have you guys had that? No. No, we have. People want to know where your turkeys are? No, we have not. Because um, you can tell them exactly where they are. We can. <laughs> we can tell them with certainty. Now, we have in the past. In the interest of getting data, we have put, I have personally put hunters on birds, trying to see how the birds would respond to hunting pressure when I was putting a really good turkey hunter on them and huh. and found some pretty bizarre, crazy things. Like I mean, what? Like what? I had this one bird that the youth season opened and I put a kid and a really good guide, a biologist, turkey hunter, really good guide. He's a killer. Put them two on this bird. Gave him the GPS, basically said, put this in your GPS and you're going to be 100 yards from him when he when he gobbles. The bird uh, came up to him several times during the morning. They never saw him, and he ended up spooking and moving north about a, a half mile, and then he hung out. And he stayed there all week, and then when the general season opened the next weekend, I put another hunter on him, and the hunter went in, knew exactly where the bird was, uh, bumped the bird, after he flew down, the bird saw him. He traveled a mile and a half to the north to, no, an, really? to, to an area that was about 200 yards from the check station. And, <laughs> and he stayed there for weeks until a guy killed him who was fighting with his wife and took off in, from the af- for the afternoon to get away from home, went to the check station, parked his truck, walked over the levee to just, I'm just going to sit in the woods, didn't call put his face mask on, was playing on his phone, and he hears a bird gobble, and he calls him once, and he kills him. What were they fighting about? I didn't ask. <laughs> turkey hunting. <laughs> Pro- probably turkey hunting, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we've seen some pretty, you know, we've seen some pretty bizarre behaviors, whereas some of these other toms frequently encountered hunters. I'd love to know what they were fighting about. And, and they just hunkered down, like, we had this. We have this one Tom. I cannot tell you how many hunters he ran into, and none of them ever saw him. We'd interview the hunters when they come out of the WMA, so we had their GPS data. We knew where they were, and we knew where the Toms were, 
and we'd interview them. So how many birds did you hear? How many hunters did you see? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And we had this one gentleman who, who was right there where the bird was. And he's like, I didn't hear a bird all morning. Didn't see a bird, nothing. And he was literally under this bird all morning. The bird was right there where he was and he never heard the bird. Yeah, but when they're not, that's the thing, man. When they're not calling and not out chasing around, they're just, they're there. They're there. That's the thing I always tell myself when you're hunting turkeys in the middle of the day. It's like deer, you could be in some spot hunting deer in the middle of the day and be like, he is laid up in a briar patch. Nearby. And you're never going to yep. get, like, you're not going to get onto him. He's yep. laid up in a briar patch. You're not going to get a shot at him laying there. If you try to go in there, you're going to blow him out. It's like he's essentially untouchable. Yep. But with turkeys, it could be two in the afternoon. Like, that son of a bitch is out right now eating. Yep. Loafing around. He's out yep. perfectly visible somewhere on his feet. Yep. Unless he sees you first. And, but I'm saying, yeah. but he's not like, it's like he's findable. Oh, yeah. And yeah. what we see a lot of turkeys do during the middle of the day is they don't move much. They forage in the morning and then they settle down into a, a relatively small area during the middle of the day and they're just hanging out. And then they pick it back up in the afternoon. So I think a lot of these toms during the middle of the day when you happen to strike one is you just happen to end up close enough to him where he was comfortable in that little loafing area. He may periodically get up and feed or strut or whatever, and you just struck gold and hit him. and Got him in the right mood. And, and he's there because he he's loafing there because he's comfortable there. So you happen to get, just, by dumb luck, get close enough to him where you could strike a cord with him and then you kill him. I think that's a lot of it. We were in New Mexico. We are coming down that narrow little canyon. We are coming out yep. into sort of where... Maybe a couple of drainages sort of, I don't know if they came together or were departing each other, but it opened up, you know, into like a, a flatter zone. We were they don't actually, depart, they don't depart each other. Well, it depends on what way you're moving up and down. And right. We're going down. Yeah. So another drainage was coming in from our left. It was a, it was a big wide open zone. You want zone. to tell them what we were looking at seconds earlier? Uh, yeah. A, a turkey carcass that we believe was, you know, taken out by a cat, some kind of cat. But uh, somebody had eaten him. Anyways, we it was like a we were in a narrow drainage canyony sort of thing, and so we were a group of us, five or six probably, were fairly well hidden from this bigger opening. And right when the first two or three of us sort of popped out, and you could see a couple hundred yards, not far away, almost within shotgun range, there's a gobbler. And what does he do? Because he thought he was he had caught us early enough that he just sunk. I mean, just melted into Laid the ground. Laid his head and oh, neck yeah. out on the ground. Just, yep. You know, and I'm just thinking when you're talking about that guy that was right on top of that turkey, if the turkey was on the ground, mm -hmm. he very well just could have sunk into the ground and just laid there for two hours. What, uh, how big is a turkey's home range? Several thousand acres. In the east, southeast, as you move into western states, much bigger. The, and in fact, like Merriam's have... And Rio's to a lesser extent, they have fairly large ranges that can change by season. So you see, you know, birds that disappear from areas in the winter and then show back up in the spring. I was going to ask you about migrations yeah. as well. Yeah. Because I feel that here they migrate. Absolutely. They follow the snow line. They, they do. And they, they have much broader ranges. But if you think like, you know, Easterns are forest species and the forests don't change that much from year to year. So they tend to have several thousand acre home ranges if you encompass the entire year. How many trees take a, your average gobbler? 
how many trees does he have that he will roost in? And does he have, will he just add randomly add trees to that list? Or does he like got like, I roost there, 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 and there. And that's where I roost. Each bird has roosting areas that they go to. They don't necessarily use the same tree every time they go there, at least the Easterns. Rios and Merriams, obviously, roost are limited in some of those populations, so they go back to the exact same tree, but Easterns don't do that. We see that almost every gobbler has a handful or more range areas that they use, but they don't use them back-to-back nights during the spring. They tend to use a roost site here, and then they move to a different roost that night, and then they move to a different roost the following night. But other birds will come to the roost that they abandon. Oh, that explains a little bit. Because I read in Colorado they did a study, and there's only a 13% chance that a turkey roosts in the, uh, that these gobblers. There's yep. only a 13% chance that he'd roost in the same tree two nights in a row. That's right. And if you think about it, you know, back to these leks, they're very likely are places that are good for sound, for sound to travel, and they're they're somewhat static unless there's clear cutting or something that changes the force, they're probably fairly static. So there are certain places where I hear this all the time. I've been hearing turkeys there for 20 years. Yep, you have. And you didn't hear the same birds night after night. What you actually heard was the this bird moved and his buddy came in and roosted in that same area because these birds know there's certain places where sound carries and that's why they're gobbling. They're gobbling to hear each other and to attract hens. So there's probably some places that are just good roost areas. Yeah. So, so what do you think the odds are that uh, on Monday I went out, season wasn't open, or or let's just say, you know, it was e- evening, and uh, I went out and roosted a bird, mm-hmm. heard him on a ridge, but I couldn't hunt for two or three days. I go back in there three days later in the morning on that same ridge, there he is, gobbling. What are the odds that that's the same bird I roosted three nights earlier? If it was three nights later, it, there's a decent chance it may be the same bird. If it was the next night, there's a better chance it's not. There's a better chance that he's somewhere else than him being there two nights in a row. Now, turkeys are like people, and they're like deer and everything else. They're all different. So sure. we do – we've had some toms that, man, they were they were money going back to the same spot every night for three or four nights in a row. But Sneaky Pete. But by and large, across the population, that's not a strategy they use. And which is what's interesting is if you, they don't do that from the time they're poults. I mean, brood hens don't roost in the same spot two nights in a row. They move roost every night. And if you think about it, that makes sense from a predation standpoint. Right, yep. Don't go signal in the same spot every night because you're just attracting undue attention. Move around a little bit and don't pigeonhole yourself to the same place. You know, like Rios have to do that. They have limited roost sites, and there may be four or five trees in an entire home range that are roost locations, and they go back there every night. But Rios roost in large numbers, and in large numbers, there's safety, there's more eyes, there's more ears, there's more predator detection. You got an Eastern that's standing there with him and his buddy is right down the ridge, and there, it's just two of them. Just so people who aren't familiar... Rios have limited roosting because they're riparian. They're limited to riparian areas. That's right. So they, could, they could be surrounded by or pine big, ridges or big whatever. arid area with no trees. Yes, and, and you're seeing across the Rio range. You know, cottonwoods are really important tree species for them, and in many areas you're seeing widespread loss of, of cottonwoods 
to disease issues. And that's causing a drastic reduction in roost availability to the point where some of our rios only have, we have several marked birds that have only had two roost in their entire home range. No kidding. So you flip a coin, they're going to be at one of those two clumps of cottonwoods every night. You know, you're talking about having a great tree where people can hear you. Um, you see that with blue grouse in yeah. Alaska. Yeah. When you can, you can hunt them in the spring when they're calling. Right. And you go up and find them and sometimes they'll be like, you got like a big main ridge and there's a finger ridge coming off it and that finger ridge will have kind of a hump that sticks out and it'll be some giant tree leaning out over yep. that thing mm-hmm. and then he's up in that thing and he's just broadcasting to the world, to man. You know? yep. He's just like hanging out, looking out over everything, you yep. know? And you'd get up there and you'd be like, I bet you he's got to be in that tree. Right. And he's in just some crazy tree where he's like, like got a megaphone up there. Yeah. You know? That's interesting. That is the one other bird than big game right. bird that you can hunt during this spring. That's right. But it's limited in scope. Very limited. It's only a few weeks and I suspect how many are harvested during the spring. I, <laughs> I don't, I, I think that it's, we were, it's, we, a, it's a tough hunt and it's yeah, like, it's like everything, like everything's at a 45 degree angle. It's, it's yeah. And we took like a 45 minute boat ride to go to a remote island to, you know, to hunt them. So, yeah. I don't think there's a ton of pressure. I no. wouldn't think so. But man, it's like, it's great. If I had, to, if I could do that or hunt turkeys, I'd have a hard time deciding. I've never hunted the blue grouse, but I'll, I try it for sure. It's fun, man. But you got to go with our friend Barb. Whatever. She'll show you what's up. If not, you'll drive your, you'll pull your hair out. I could, I could see that be very, being very frustrating. Just thinking about what you just said. Steep inclines, a lot of work, and then it doesn't pay off. Well, kind of like the thing elk. being that, like, when you hear a turkey gobble, you start getting close. You kind of be like, "Well, he must be right over there." These things, the sound, the noise they make, which is, you can't place it. Oh, so it it's unplaceable. It breaks down in the environment. Yeah, you're just like, I don't know, man. Somewhere within a hundred yards of me, there's a bird yeah. doing that noise. Right. I don't know what direction. Yeah. That yeah. would make sense, yeah. It's tough. It's more like, um, it's like you kind of feel it. Yeah, like you a can't dr- tell like if a you're drum. hearing it or feeling it. Yeah, like you know? a drum. It's a weird. You kind of know he's drumming over in that area, exactly. but when he yeah. pops out, it is the, like a rough grouse drum. The drumming is a little different from where you thought it was. I had it right there, and in reality, it's right over there. Yeah, sure. you can basically be like within a hundred. I can tell you within about a hundred eighty degrees where he yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What else we got, Yanni? I just want to follow up um, a little bit more on the predator populations. Like, what, out, outside of low fur prices, what else is causing the big boom? We see snakes are a huge predator of, of eggs and poults, and I don't remember seeing that when I was a student. If you look at many areas of the, of the United States, particularly the, you know, where I do most of my work, it's become brushier, shrubbier, woodier, less prescribed fire, less land disturbance, um, pine monoculture, edges, fragmentation, and snakes benefit from that. So we see snakes account for 40% of nest loss on some of our sites. Eating the eggs? Yes, rat snakes, and they kill the poult. And a friend of mine who's a a, a herp guy at UGA has, has told me that Rat snakes are... Snake prices are down. <laughs> yeah. He said that rat snakes are really savvy sage predators that they tend to revisit nest. So if they go and they eat three or four eggs, 
in this area, they'll go back and keep searching and keep searching and keep searching until they get all the eggs. Really? Yeah. So if you think about it, even if she's laying, right, if she hasn't finished the clutch and the snake shows up and picks all four, that snake's going back to that clutch before it's over, said, you know, all said and done. Yeah, the Old Testament was right, man. Yeah, and and, and, and John <laughs> was telling me, this buddy of mine, he was like, man, if, if the eggs are there, they're going to find them. So I, I think, How do you think they're finding them, from smell? They, keen sense of, of smell as a snake has it. They also are visual predators. They sit in shrub, mid-story, understory, and they watch. Really? And there's... They got good long, they got long, some type of long range vision. Some type of vision that they know something is there. And I think probably what's happening is as these birds are leaving their clutches for recesses, right? They're moving away and back and forth. That through time, the sense that the key, the snake keys in on that nest site and it doesn't take that many days. And if there are numerically more of these snakes than there were, that just through the law of averages, more nest are going to be eaten. So to your question, that snakes are, are an important predator by far. Huh. And there's more of them because the habitat is good for them right yes. now. Yes. Basically, what we've done is create a landscape that's better for predators than turkeys, basically, in many areas. Here's my last question for you. Why do, uh, why do turkeys, when you shoot a turkey, sometimes his buddies beat the hell out of them. Yep. How is their desire to get each other when they're down higher than their desire to like get away from a loud, sudden gunshot? Like, what is it in them that's so keyed up to wait for a moment of weakness? That's their social hierarchy. That's that pecking order where turkey. I was. I've been told turkeys they fight from the time they're young and they never forget a grudge. They carry a grudge their entire lives. So they're around these other birds that have beaten them. <laughs> Just looking at them out of the yeah. corner of his eye. <laughs> and when you shoot that bird, he is suddenly vulnerable, even if you're the dominant. But, but they make that decision so fast. Because this is ingrained. This is what structures their populations. These social hierarchies start from day one of, of hatching. And they. this is the ladder. That ladder has dictated their entire lives. So when that ladder, when one of those steps gets broken, the guy that's under, that's the step below immediately sees that as a, a sign of weakness and he is going to attack that bird that's socially above him and win so that he can move up a step. And he Would does, he kill it if he could? Well, he's, well, they don't really kill each other. They just beat the hell out of but each other. But you never other. see one actually get like, let's say they're in a fight and he gets mad or, or whatever, a bird gets weakened by something. Will they ever harass it to the point of killing it? Oh yeah. Well, they, they, given will, the, they, given will, the they will injure each other to the point where they can suffer mortalities from it. Because then it just it just compounds and gets they, worse and worse. Yeah, and worse. they spur each other, they cut each other. They if they get injuries, the other birds peck at those injuries. If it's on the head, so you kind of have to isolate birds that are injured if they're in captivity because they'll they'll hurt each other. Got you. So when these toms see the other their buddy on the ground, that's an opportunity to move up in the pecking order. That's what they're doing, and they're able to make that call like that instantaneous because <laughs> that that pecking order has structured their life from the time that they were little. So. That's so, all they've known. See, I'd like to think that uh, if something happened to me, Yanni wouldn't just instantaneously be <laughs> I've seen him looking at you funny out there. <laughs> like, I trip and he just yeah. jumps out and he starts yeah. beating the hell starts out of me. Like, like, Seth, Seth, I know you know how to do that tourniquet, but you don't need to do it that tight. <laughs> Not that tight. Put it around his neck. We never we never got back to Shot Goblin. We got to have him back. Oh. <sighs> we didn't get to Turkey Tuesday either. Ooh. Oh, no, we're going to do that. Okay. 
Tur- tell people about Turkey Tuesday. I like Turkey Tuesday. Yeah, Turkey Tuesday started. I said, I go check it out by slap. I got to click. The, I got to click the follow button. Please do. That would <laughs> that would help. Yeah, I just opened up Instagram. Yeah, so it's I'm at Wild s- Turkey Doc on Twitter and Instagram. Like Doctor Wild yep, Wild Turkey Doc. There you are, Wild Turkey Doc Mike Chamberlain. I'm opening the page up. Yeah, so every Tuesday I follow post back. Some I, see, I like it already because I'm seeing like diagrams and charts and yep, yep. That's not my a lot of gripping grins nice. yet. No gripping grins. Not yet. That's my oh, way. Of, there's a duck gripping grin. That's my way of putting a little bit of science out to people who may not see it, and in a digestible way where they can appreciate why we do research and what it means. Oh, here's a here's a diagram. Just for instance. It's a chart showing um, prescribed burns. Yes. How, how, how the scale of fires affects turkeys. Yep. Yep. And, and that, some modeling work. That came about to a point you made earlier. Um, former student works as a state agency biologist. He posts on Facebook and he absolutely gets chewed alive. And it really made me mad because he couldn't respond. And I said right then, I was like, you know what? Every week I'm going to put something out there because I can respond. Mm-hmm. I have academic freedom and I can right. I can go back and forth. And it was so clear to me when Jeremy, who's the turkey coordinator in Arkansas, when he made that post, he couldn't respond to, the, to people that, that were criticizing him because they were misinformed. And right there I said, you know what? I don't get paid to do this, to, to, to post on social media. I don't get credit for it per se, but... I'm going to do this because this is a forum where people can digest what I do. Now, if I can just take the ability to, to, to give it to them in a, a easily digestible way where they can appreciate what research is being done and why it's important to them, then every week I'm going to post something and I'm going to get as much momentum started as I can so that people understand the issues facing this bird. And it's, it's been great. I mean, it started, as you can imagine, it started slow, but recently it's really exploded and it's awesome because I get people that, that don't see academic work. They have no idea that I even exist. They don't, yeah. they don't know what I'm doing. They, I've been studying this bird for 25 years. They have no idea who I am. They don't know the research that's ongoing, but when they see those posts, they suddenly realize that there's something in being done that I can relate to and I think is is relevant to me as a hunter and a land manager. So I'm going to follow it. And, and if every post is not to their liking, fine. But I also respond to the naysayers, people that are critical of me or the work. I try to go back and revisit those posts and try to, to help explain to people that may not understand the science and what we're doing, why it's important to them. I'm looking at I'm looking at your March third post right now, and it's a map. It's a satellite photograph of an area that's 16 square miles, and on it are 6,100 yellow dots, all GPS locations where a hen turkey hangs out. Yep. So she's using she's using 16 square miles, but the dots show of that where she likes to be. Yes. Think about that map. And there's big areas. Where she doesn't do shit. She never goes and there. And there's big areas where she really, really likes it. Yep. She has to maintain a 16-square-mile home range to be able to find those pockets. That's a problem. That bird should only maintain a couple of square miles. Back 25 years ago, we didn't see 16-square-mile home ranges. The only reason a bird that's scaled to be the size of a turkey 
would move 16 square miles is because they have to. Doesn't have what she needs. Exactly. So she's trying to balance energy intake with energy loss, and it takes her 16 square miles to do that. To me, that's a habitat problem. That's something that I think most people would look at that map that Steve's looking at and think, wait a minute, if he's telling us that is law, I mean, if you think 16 square miles, that's a huge area. If a turkey's using that, and I only own 500 acres, that bird's disappearing from my land for weeks or months on end, and I whatever I'm doing is not benefiting this bird because they're not even on my property anymore. Right. Yeah. It speaks to the need that we need to cooperate. We need to we need to think bigger about how we're managing habitat for this bird. That was kind of the reason for that. That in, in Four your, hours ago, you posted uh, a chart that shows gobbling activity and barometric uh, pressure. Yeah, cor- correlated to barometric pressure. Yes, yeah. So all the gobbling research done previous to this used people to to record gobbles. So their data sets had like five hundred gobbles. That has one hundred seventy thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> and 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 we relate it to weather variables, and we see like that figure shows that if you on a, on any given day, if you have an average barometric pressure, whatever the average is that day, if the barometric pressure starts rising 0.03 inches, right, or 0.3 inches, you see this market increase in gobbling activity, and conversely, if the pressure is declining, you might as well stay in bed, right? Because really. And if Dude, you, this is going to create like a bunch of. That's going to be hard. This to is going to create a bunch of Mark Kenyon type turkey hunters, yeah. man. That's it. <laughs> like, well, oh, you know, this next year, Tuesday the third, <laughs> looks <laughs> like a good time. <laughs> Rising barometer. <laughs> what's uh? So what's that? Uh, you know, you always hear people. I heard five hundred gobbles this morning. Heard th- it was a thousand gobble morning. <laughs> yep. What, what in reality? Since you know, I'm in, in, off of one sensor. How far can you hear? How far several, can you hear? several hundred yards all the way around. What's the most gobbles one of those things ever logged in a day? A couple hundred. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think gobble, gobble, gobble. That's it. Fly down, and then they're moving away from the, the song meter. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, cause, so, okay, so you think you're not picking up a lot of the stuff he does on the ground because he moves away. Some of I them just do. think that sometimes I've sat there under a – bird in a tree and you think he gobbles a hundred times before he flies down when you start actually counting that you mm-hmm. don't get anywhere close to a hundred i've done the same thing i've sat there and thought man he is gobbling his head off 18 19 20 and he flies down it was like 34 and i, and I would have texted my buddy and said he gobbled 250 times <laughs> yeah. uh, it was 34 right well it felt like felt like 250 yeah. yeah. i'm gonna do a better job of counting yeah in your uh, 25 years of research, what's the most like surprising thing you've learned about wild turkeys? The most surprising thing? Cook them drumsticks long enough to get Yeah, they're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say without question, the things that I've published that were false, that's been the biggest surprise. Like I published a paper years ago saying that hens went out and searched for nest sites. Right, they they went and looked for these really good nest sites because a lot of people had found the same thing, and in reality, we see now they don't do any of that. They don't. They literally fly down the day they're going to lay the first egg, and they go find a spot to nest. They don't visit these sites days in advance or weeks in advance. They don't go pick this perfect spot like I thought they used to. Hmm. So I've actually found that my own science was garbage. That. That work was flawed, and it was flawed because of technology. We just didn't have the technology that we had, so we were inferring things that were inaccurate. It's good that you're comfortable um, 
admitting that and moving on and not doubling down on it. I don't because that's what science is about. Yeah. If you can't admit your own errors and flaws, then you shouldn't be in the academic but that's why my father liked to discount all science is because the story, <laughs> the story would change. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. if like if the story changed, he just was like, "Ah, screw the whole thing." <laughs> Yesterday it was this, and today it's this. So therefore, I'll just live in a uh, factless world rather than just sort of embracing the process. If somebody comes along twenty years from now and proves me wrong, then I would welcome that because that meant that somebody cared enough to go revisit those questions for the resource. Yeah. He'd be and like, it, the people, these people change their minds yeah, all the time. They're if, wishy-washy. If Mike is wrong in his assertions, then he was wrong. But at least science is moving forward. Yeah. yeah. Seth, that was Brody's concluder. What do, you, what do you say to people that say turkeys are dumb animals? <laughs> they can do some stupid things. You understand they have a brain that's quite small. In their environment, they're incredibly savvy until it's time to breed. Uh, and then they can do some, Tom's can do some stupid things, as we all know. Yeah. But by and large, I mean, this is a bird that in its own environment is quite intelligent. In the breeding season, all bets are off. So gotcha. that's kind of the way. But even though, even like what you just said, it uh, sounds like they smarten up to their the pressure during during the breeding season during the hunting season if they didn't we wouldn't have many i mean they they obviously become more wise yeah yeah adaptable absolutely absolutely all right dr michael chamberlain michael chamberlain c-h-a-m-b-e-r-l-a-i-n found on instagram wild turkey doc twitter too on facebook oh is that right yeah on twitter it's the same handle and on facebook it's just my name yeah. Yep. I'm an Instagram man. Me too. But I, you know why? Because people don't get all keyed up on politics. Facebook, they get all riled up. Well, it's a different demographic. <laughs> they get on Facebook like Hillary yeah. Clinton. You tend to and get, then they, and then they go over to like some hunting thing and they're pissed. Yeah, it's a different demographic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But on Instagram, they're just like, "Yeah, what's going on? Oh, yeah. it's cool." Yeah, you I, catch them in a different mood. Yeah, if somebody gets cranky <laughs> and fussy at me, it's usually on Facebook. Almost always. It's never on oh, Twitter. Oh, they're already riled up. Or Instagram. Yeah, they, they were mad before they ever logged yeah. on. Donald. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's this guy, Turkey? He thinks he knows about turkeys. Yeah, I've been, I've been hunting turkeys my whole life. What you're saying is, you know, garbage. I get that. Yeah, I'm sure. It's okay. Uh, all right. I followed you. I had looked previously, but now I follow. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. That was great. Yeah, Thank I you. I learned awesome. a bunch. All right, buddy, go follow him on Instagram. Let's let's uh, let's smoke his number up. Oh, also, we got to present with our T-shirt. So, here's our T-shirt. It says it's a circle, and inside the circle is a turkey, and the circle says "Meat Eater." Sounds that make a turkey gobble, and then within the then the turkey is filled in with things that make a, a sampling. Okay. Ice cream trucks, sonic booms, cattle guards, antlers rattling, revving motorcycles, the calls of a loon, monastery bells, these are all user-sourced, shotgun blasts, rumble strips, loosening lug nuts, artillery fire, ambulance sirens, dropping anchors, the brays of a jackass, (laughs) kicking rusty hunks of metal, the calls of a peacock, woodpeckers hammering on trees, Squeaky door hinges, dry heaves, rocks thrown at stop signs, train whistles, dog whistles, elk bugles, coyote halls, helicopters, and thunder. The dry heaves. But we only just scratched the surface. We got a list to curl your hair. I'll wear it with pride. Here's your t-shirt. I'll wear it with pride, knowing that whoever came up with the dry heaves example, that had to be a hell of a story. Three 
people really wrote in about puking and getting rips from it. <laughs> I'm not going to try that. Three people by design. <laughs> by design, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're too old for that. Well, I appreciate. Oh, yeah, you. I, I laid appreciate off the you. puking considerably, man. That's <laughs> like a real part of life. <laughs> <laughs> been there, been there. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. All right. Thank you. Yep. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to MontanaCastingCo.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount.